You're listening to Plenary Session. In this episode of Plenary Session, I'm going to talk about a few things, two of which I was dragged into. One, post-publication metrics of randomized clinical trials with and without null findings. This is a research letter that appeared in JAMA. I'm going to take you through it. Next, I'm going to talk about a paper that appeared in JAMA Network Open, JAMA No, Association of Primary Care Clinic Appointment Time with Clinician Ordering and Patient Completion of Breast and Colorectal Cancer Screening. This is a paper that's gotten a lot of publicity, including a provocative headline in the New York Times that says, Don't See Your Doctor in the Afternoon. Finally, I'm going to talk about a wonderful paper by Alex Drillon and colleagues that was featured on the Twitter feed of Greg Riley. It's a great story, and I really enjoyed this paper. It's called Exceptional Responders with Invasive Mucinous Adenocarcinomas, a Phase two Trial of Bortezomib in Patients with KRAS G12D Mutant Lung Cancers. This is a unique story because the authors here did something that a lot of other people wouldn't do, which is they decided to take a hypothesis and put it to the test. They deserve a lot of credit here, and they have gone above and beyond the call of duty. And in doing so, they have set the standard for what many others should do. You won't want to miss this discussion. But first, I'm going to start with a little correction that was raised to my attention by an astute listener. And finally, I have an interview with no other than Christopher Booth. We decided to get into the plenary session mobile command unit and go on a little trip per the request of the visiting guest dignitary, Dr. Booth. And during that trip, we mic'd up and I conducted the interview on the road. So if you can put up with the road rage, you're in for the treat of astute clinical commentaries by Dr. Christopher Booth of Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. You won't want to miss this episode. Stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, I need you to do three things. One, go to patreon.com and back this podcast. Next, go to the iTunes store and don't just give us five stars. Write a review. Third, recommend Plenary Session to a friend. Now, what can Plenary Session do for you? Well, we can answer your questions. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or send us an email at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. First up, I got an email from Anonymous. Anonymous has done a wonderful job of disguising the email in a way that I have no idea who this is. But I want to thank Anonymous because Anonymous has brought something to my attention that's actually quite good. I wish Anonymous was here to take credit. Anonymous writes, in the latest episode 1.6 of Plenary Session, I believe that the impact of biosimilars on Copaxone pricing has been slightly understated given the latest revenue numbers from Teva, slide 8. One can see that over a two-year period, market share of Copaxone in the glutamine acetate market went from 100% to 67%, and Teva has had to cut the price in half. Not clear if it means that the cost of healthcare system has dropped to a similar extent as well, but it seems like competition is finally alive and well here. So, I reviewed the files that were sent by the astute reader, which is a slide deck from Teva Pharmaceuticals, and I concur. I concur that um, this really does show a dramatic reduction in Copaxone market share over time. Um, it shows a dramatic reduction in revenue by quarter, and it does not explicitly mention, although I take the listener at his or her word, that the manufacturer has had to undercut the price of Copaxone in order to try to reclaim some market share here. Um, 
So I do think this is interesting. So I think that the listener is right that uh, in our extended discussion with Daniel Hartung, many, many points were made. One of those points was what was the impact of biosimilars on Copaxone pricing? Uh, Here it appears that Copaxone has fallen a lot. Now there's some other trends that have happened over this time, of course, which is the introduction of many, many other potential rival compounds in the MS marketplace that may perhaps to some degree account for the declining revenue and sales per quarter. But I think the point is well taken that perhaps um, perhaps it was the biosimilar, perhaps it was the availability of other branded medications, but either way, no doubt about it, market share has fallen, revenue has fallen quite dramatically actually. So I thank the listener for this correction. Um, it does show either way, no matter how you, how you slice it, that it seems like competition to some degree is alive and well. I think that's well put. And I really want to thank the listener because the listener had to listen to a lot of plenary session to find this because this was this was deep in the podcast. So I'm grateful to this listener to bring this to my attention. There's another listener that wrote in that asked me to take the readers through the paper by Gomez and colleagues that appeared in Journal of Clinical Oncology. I will try to do that at the next plenary session because I got a little bit busy this week with a few other things to talk about. Okay, first up, post-publication metrics of randomized clinical trials with and without null findings. This was a research letter that appeared in JAMA, and I have previously on this podcast taken a few research letters or letters to the editor to task in the New England Journal of Medicine because I said that they were conceptually flawed and unable to answer the question they set out to ask. This paper, I also think, is conceptually flawed, and I think it's actually not telling me anything really of value, and let me take you through it. The authors here did something simple. They got 10 JAMA network journals, which, let's be fair, these tend to be good journals. You, you, as a general rule of thumb, want to publish in a JAMA network journal. It's a good place to publish. There's no doubt about that. A lot of people are craving a JAMA network publication, which includes Mama JAMA. It includes JAMA Dermatology, JAMA Facial plastic surgery, JAMA, internal medicine, neurology, ophthalmology, otolaryngology, pediatric psychiatry, and surgery. And now the new one, JAMA Network Open. You want to get your articles in there. And I probably have published, actually, the JAMA Network has probably published more of my articles than any other network of journals. So I have to thank JAMA. I think they do a great job. I I know they do, at least on those articles. But I know they do in general. So... This article asks a question, this research letter asks a question, which is we looked through all the randomized trials that are published in the JAMA Network journals over a two-year period of time, and we wanted to know, is there a difference in the altmetric score and citation counts for articles that rejected null hypotheses versus those that could not or failed to reject null hypotheses? They call failing to reject the null hypothesis supporting the null hypothesis. I believe some statistical pedants would not be happy with that characterization, but I don't know. Let's see what the listeners have to say about that. But I've never heard it supporting the null hypothesis. I said failing to reject the null hypothesis is the right way to put that. Well, here's what they find. Basically, these are positive or negative randomized control trials published in the JAMA Network journals. And the bottom line is that there is no difference in the altmetric score, which is 70-something for the positive ones and 70-something for the negative ones. There is a small difference in the citation number, which is 56 for the positive ones, 45.5 for the negative ones, though that did not meet statistical significance. And there was no difference in the number of times people viewed the articles, about a median of 13,000 views for the positive ones and 13,000 views for the negative ones. 
So, in other words, if you looked at a set of post-publication metrics of randomized clinical trials that appeared in the JAMA Network series of journals, you found very little difference in how many times it was cited, discussed online and in blogs and in the media, and how many times it was viewed. So the authors conclude. The authors introduced their paper with this provocative introductory paragraph, which I'll read to you. Publication bias may arise from the perception that non-significant findings will garner less scientific or public attention than findings that confirm study hypotheses. However, whether or not this perception is accurate remains unknown. Thus, we investigated the association between whether a study supported or rejected the null hypothesis and post-publication metrics reflecting scientific and public interest. So that's what they state they're doing. But what are they really doing? They're not really doing that. They're not really answering the question of whether or not people care as much and are interested in reading positive versus negative findings and ergo whether or not journals follow that and think about that and choose articles based on that. They're not addressing that question at all. They're addressing a different question, which is that if, and this is a big if, if you were published in the JAMA Network Journal, what happened? If you were published in a JAMA Network journal, then a lot of people read your article, a lot of people discussed your article, and a lot of people cited your article. And that was hard to tell apart, no real difference in discussion, no in altmetric, no real difference in views, maybe a difference in citations, but you know, m not meeting their pre-specified statistical bar, but maybe, um, if you publish in the JAMA Network journals. You see, the big flaw of this paper conceptually is that Surely, the editors of the JAMA Network journals, who are very good editors, considered whether or not negative results were interesting, provocative, and worthy of discussion in the process by which they decided what articles to cover. So they're not covering any negative article, and they're not covering any positive article. They're covering positive and negative articles that they think you are interested in and will talk about. And this shows that the way they're choosing the articles, that's probably true. They're picking articles that are, you're interested in what the result of the article is. Does that mean they're preferentially choosing positive articles over negative articles? That's almost surely the case, but it's not addressed by the current method. You can't just look at the articles they've selected and say they're equally discussed, conclude, ergo, this whole idea that the public doesn't care about negative findings is not true. Because it probably is true, the public doesn't care about many negative findings, but those aren't making it through the JAMA network filters. You see, they've rejected those articles, probably an overwhelming number. I mean, the real lesson is if you are the author of a randomized controlled trial that's stone cold negative, you should want to publish that in a really, really good journal, which surprise, surprise, you already do want to publish in a really, really good journal. And surprise, surprise, if you were so lucky to get it through all of the human biases and selection biases that exist between you and that really, really good journal, then lo and behold, it probably is pretty provocative to have slipped through and is going to be discussed widely. So it tells me nothing I didn't know, nothing really interesting. It's building in the selection bias but it answers something that I didn't really care too much about. All right, well, Ben Mazur on Twitter made the astute point that it's a lot like saying, what's the response rate in phase one clinical trials that are published? If you asked, what is the response rate in phase one clinical trials that were published in the top three journals, I promise you it's gonna be higher than the phase one clinical trial response rate in all journals, and it's gonna be higher than the phase one clinical trial response rate in published and unpublished studies. Because all of the selection filters of publication bias of selective reporting bias, which is the broad umbrella term under which publication bias falls, favor provocative, sensational practice changing results. That's it. All right, 
Next topic. Association of Primary Care Clinic Appointment Time with Clinician Ordering and Patient Completion of Breast and Colorectal Cancer Screening. This one generated a lot of buzz, including an opinion article in the New York Times with the headline, Don't Visit Your Doctor in the Afternoon. Everyone suffers decision fatigue, even physicians. Boom. How do you like that headline? Don't visit your doctor in the afternoon. Boy, that's a doozy. That's one heck of a recommendation. And the article leads with this recent paper. What can I say about this paper? This is a paper that uses a very large data set, but never confuse big data with good data. This is a data set that includes 19,000 patients eligible for breast cancer screening and over 30 grand patients eligible for colorectal cancer screening. And the authors here did something quite simple, which was they say, based on the time in which you get your initial PCP appointment, is there a variation in the rate at which women between the age of 50 and 75 undergo mammographic screening and the rate at which men and women between the ages of 50 and 75 undergo colorectal cancer screening? And they adjust for a few things. So first, they use a conditional logistic regression model because that will help them adjust for the fact that some clinicians may have practice patterns different. Some may be an 11 to 6 p.m. kind of clinician. Some may be a 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. kind of clinician. So how do you adjust for that? So in this model, they stratify the analysis by clinician so that the model evaluates within clinician my understanding of it is it's kind of written a little bit, I would have liked to see it a little bit more, um, in the hopes that this is adjusting for the fact that the afternoon-only doctors are not, you know, dragging down outcomes for the PM group and that there's not some AM-only early bird gets the worm doctor that's, you know, really doing a home run job of this and driving the outcome. So they're trying to adjust for the individual doing the work to really show that this is a trend that has to do with the time in which the patient is being seen. They also adjust for age, sex, race, ethnicity, household income. But household income here is linked to each patient through the U.S. Census data on the median household income based on zip code. That ain't exactly your household income. And of course, there are lots of places in the world where people say the median is not the message. And I can promise you, it's not the message when it comes to your household income. Because even within a neighborhood in a city like Portland or Chicago, there may be tremendous variation in household income. You are making the reader believe you can say, you can say something like we adjusted for household income and the reader may believe you've adjusted for socioeconomics and all of the things that go with that um, but in fact i think you've done no such real thing in this in this paper and in many other papers that use that kind of method they just for insurance status the charleston comorbidity index the clinic visit which is new or returned the year and calendar month to try to get over some seasonality, um, and then the covariate for each appointment hour. And I think they also ran their analysis based on time as a linear variable, so that's fine too. Okay, <clears throat> and what do they find? Well, they find that there appears to be a reduction over time from, say, 60% of people eligible for breast cancer screening get screening if they had that 8 a.m. appointment, but that drops precipitously to the high 40s if they get that 5 p.m. appointment. And this is true also for colorectal cancer, that those percentages are lower, starting in the mid-30s and dropping down to the mid-20s. And one point worth making about colon cancer here is that you get credit no matter what you do, whether that's colonoscopy, sigmoidoscopy, FIT, FOBT, which who is doing that still? Come on, people. And multi-targeted stool DNA assay, which on the other end of the spectrum, who's doing that? Come on, people. Come on, people. You, you can get away with fit. Um, and sigmoidoscopy, colonoscopy, the randomized trial is ongoing. I mean, I think the takeaway point here is th that 
to my knowledge, of all of these interventions, um, mammography has never and likely will never show an all-cause mortality benefit in pooled RCTs of every single mammographic trial ever performed. There is considerable disagreement about the benefits and harms, and the practice patterns vary dramatically across the world in the interpretation of mammography. In colorectal cancer screening, we finally, in an Annals of Internal Medicine letter to the editor, see some suggestion that maybe sigmoidoscopy is just tipping over the mark of actually being able to translate into all-cause mortality benefit in RCT. Colonoscopy, of course, we don't have a single RCT to date um, fit. We don't have RCTs. We extrapolate, which I think is a reasonable extrapolation based on principles that were shown with FOBT. With FOBT, we have long-term follow-up of Minnesota study, which shows actually no difference in all-cause mortality and Kaplan-Meier curves that you couldn't tell apart. Even if you were an oncologist on the plenary stage, you couldn't fit a laser pointer between those curves. So I think what you see here is uh, practices for which interpretation is varied, maybe having different levels of evidence. Okay, I want to come back to this point in a little bit, but let me run read you the introductory sentence. Cancer is a leading cause of mortality in the United States. I don't like that opening sentence because it's too broad. Okay, this is something that this is a, a tip for writing research papers. You know, people talk about an introduction like a funnel. You want to start broad and then you want to get to, by the end of the introduction, boom, people write to what you're doing. But one of the things you don't want to do is start so broad that you're not going to get to where you want to be in a, in a fast and meaningful way. So let me give you an example. Uh, if we have a paper that looked at what fraction of cancer patients' upper bound estimate may benefit from checkpoint inhibitors, here's how we don't want to start that introductory sentence. We don't want to say something like, human beings suffer medical illness. Okay, that's a little too broad. And I think I would also say, even if my paper were on cancer only, I don't want to start by saying, cancer is bad. Cancer is leading cause mortality in the United States. Okay, cancer is bad. I mean, that's too broad. I want to focus in. I would start this introduction by saying, um, whether or not practice patterns vary by the time at which a patient is seen in clinic is an unanswered question. Or, you know, I would start with that. Whether or not practice varies by time of appointment. Because I think that's what this paper shoots in on. Um, there's some other things in the introduction that trouble me. Appropriate cancer screening can be effective in decreasing both morbidity and mortality by detecting and treating cancers at an earlier stage. However, underuse of cancer screening tests is common. For instance, the CDC recommends that among adults who meet guideline recommendations, approximately 37% have not been screened for colon cancer and 28% have not been screened for breast cancer. Okay, the reason this troubles me is that it's kind of packaged with this idea that you ought to get this done. And that's not the right thing. You ought to have the right discussion, and then you ought to decide what's right for you. So if you talk about an intervention that has known harms like false positives, overdiagnosis, repeat calls, and the only benefit that itself is disputed is a reduction in cause-specific mortality, and there is no signal on all-cause mortality, period, as mammography is. If that is your intervention, it seems to me ludicrous to say that the right answer is 100% of women who meet guideline recommendations ought to get that done. How is that the right answer? If you had an intervention where you're improving all-cause mortality 6%, um, one can imagine there still may be some people for whom the burden of the intervention is not worth it. But that's something that maybe we want to get to 90-some percent or higher. You know, that's something that probably most people would want. All-cause mortality benefits, six percentage points, you know, something like that. But you're talking about an intervention that does not budge all-cause mortality. How can you demand that to be 100%? It has real harms, real side effects, real burdens, and it has an Im impact on cause-specific mortality, which is a 
an endpoint that requires adjudication, which is something we're going to talk about on a future podcast when a big paper we've been working on comes out in a journal that's soon to come, um, and all-cause mortality doesn't budge, okay, I think this is not the kind of thing that you want to ask is it being done all the time. Um, the other thing they write in the abstract, future interventions targeting improvements in cancer screening should consider how time of day may influence their behaviors. See, I don't like that either. The goal is not to target improvements in cancer screening. The right rate of cancer screening is what is compatible with what people want once they understand what has been shown positive, what has been shown negative, and what is merely hoped for and uncertain about cancer screening. Okay? It's not 100%. The colon cancer example, I think the data for sigmoidoscopy is probably the least disputed, but these are all exist on a gradient. You know, I think that the stool DNA... Um, whether or not that has the same sensitivity of fit in one time, yeah, New England Journal paper comments on that. But what about when you allow fit to be used as fit is meant to be used, which is annually? Um, what happens to sensitivity differences over time there? We don't know. That study's not been done nor reported. So I think there's a lot here that needs to be unpacked. It might be nice to see all of the colon cancer things broken out separately. It might be nice also to ask whether or not more people who get 8 a.m. appointments get colonoscopy for sigmoidoscopy, whatever. You know, is there a variation by the choice of screening test by time? Anyway, this paper purports to say, as the day goes on, people are less likely to order the test and people are less likely to perform the test and the gap between ordering and getting it done is about the same, suggesting that the same fraction of people who get this ordered are going to be compliant with it. Okay, fair enough. But here's the problems with this analysis. You have not adjusted for the major confounding factor here, which is, you're asking, does a preference-sensitive decision vary over time? In other words, does the patient's preference to have a cancer screening test ordered and, slash the patient-clinician preference of a cancer screening test ordered vary over time? Um, you're asking, does it vary over time? But time of appointment itself is a preference-sensitive decision. For instance, the type of person who may seek out, crave, and get an 8 a.m. new PCP intake appointment, and the type of person who may seek out, crave, and get a 4.30 or 5 p.m. appointment, and the type of person who may get the noon appointment, because there's a little inflection, a little ticket noon, these may all be very different types of people. You know, the screening rates seem to go up at noon. Is that is that the lunch break hour from uh, the people the people who get out at lunch and they want to get to see the PCP at noon? You know, one can speculate all one wishes about who are the types of people. But the choice of your initial appointment, choice of your follow-up appointment, these are not things that are randomly distributed in the population. They are based on the kinds of people who seek out certain appointment times and you know, I may be a type of person who seeks out a certain point in time. You may be a different type of person. There is no way to adjust for that in this data set. And adjusting by household income by zip code is a very token way to adjust for socioeconomic status that doesn't capture that at all. And it doesn't capture the type of person someone is. And ostensibly, the type of person who may seek out and crave an 8 or 9 a.m. appointment um, might be the type of person more inclined to pursue interventions with, at best, modest benefits that are uncertain, um, which is what cancer screening is, and the type of person who gets a 4 or 5 p.m. appointment might not be. And it might be interesting to just know what the no-show rate is by appointment time. I don't know that off the top of my head, but I have a guess what that might be. Okay, so these are kind of some criticisms of the study itself. It would be nice, and you know, they talk about flu vaccines as another thing that they've studied over time, but again, 
I mean, as much as we wish it weren't the case, undergo the decision to get a flu vaccine is a preference-sensitive decision. It depends on the type of person and their feelings about that healthcare choice. Now, I, the reason I say all this is take an intervention that I think is has very low preference sensitivity. By that I mean, if you're diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease, stage three or four, you have a choice between getting a curative treatment regimen, which I'll put a few in a bucket there, a AVD, which I don't like, but it's 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 given by some. A BVD, um, we discussed AAVD on a prior episode of the podcast. A BVD, which I think is probably the de facto regimen that most physicians use. Stanford Five or be a cop or escalated be a cop. Okay, let's take those as a sort of five treatment regimens. If one were to take a set of patients who present to many many different oncologists, be it at 8 a.m., 9 a.m., or 5 p.m., new appointment with Hodgkin's disease advanced stage, and you ask. What fraction of those individuals get the doctor recommending one of those five treatment curative regimens or not? I suspect it's going to be 99.9 get it recommended and maybe 97 or 98 accept it, irrespective of the time of day. Why do I pick that example? That's a home run, indisputable medical intervention, a condition that is thought to have a 100% mortality on the course of several years and maybe a median survival of two to three years based on some historical published reports. Um, that's if you don't do anything. And if you do do something, you're talking about cure rates that are 80, 90 percentage points. And then you're talking about treatment that is manageable and that people get through. And you're talking about people who often present in their 20s and 30s, which is the first of the two bimodal peaks of that, of that incidence. So you're talking about something that I think a lot of people believe is a no-brainer that you want to get this done. And there I think you'll see less sort of variation because there'll be less variation because it's less of a preference-sensitive decision in healthcare. The authors also cite, I think, some things that are more provocative, which have to do with the rates of opioid prescription by time of day, hand washing among clinicians towards the end of shift, which I think is actually getting at this in a different way, inappropriate antibiotic prescribing. But the antibiotics and the opioids, again, they still fall in victim to, I think, this type of patient who wants to be seen at a certain time of day kind of issue. Anyway, this article doesn't circumvent that problem. But let us say for the sake of argument that what they find is true. What do they want us to do about it? The headline of the New York Times articles, Don't Visit Your Doctor in the Afternoon, is the absolute worst headline that anyone could ever publish because it encourages people to seek out that 8 a.m. appointment. There's only one 8 a.m. appointment. If everyone has an 8 a.m. appointment, then no one has an 8 a.m. appointment, except maybe one person that you actually see at 8 a.m., and then everyone else is going to get delayed. So, so I don't think that's the solution. I'm also not sure what the right rate of scanning is, so I have a number of problems here in terms of what to do about this and how to act upon it. Okay, and now I'm going to give you my unpopular opinion that I've only told some people privately, which is that I think that articles like this are what I think it, it's, some of, it's part of the problem of primary care policy outcomes research, which is that primary care doctors are often the ones who have the time, the resources, the abilities, the centers, the groups to do really good healthcare research in large observational data sets. They have that skill set. They have that power. But I feel as if they often fall into asking really not useful or not interesting questions. And part of that has to do with the fact that there are only so many things in primary care that one can run this analysis for. Um, cancer screening is one of those things. It's, it's this thing that, oh, anybody, any woman between the age of 50 and 75, they should, you know, you could tell a story to yourself, they should have that done. But over the course of an internist day, the average day sees such a variety of cases that there may be difficult 
to try to extract threads that one could study. Uh, one person has vertigo. One person has chest tightness. One person has um, a blue mark on their leg. One person has tachycardia and feels lousy. One person has um, unexplained weight loss and is not eating. So, you know, what can you study? You can only study this handful of primary care metrics and the health policy researchers that work in this space consistently study the same handful of metrics and you get a lot of research that asks whether or not these metrics which we don't know if they have any real value or if those should be the metrics do they vary by time of day by the place you get seen by the, the doctor who sees you by whether or not the doctor had coffee whether or not the doctor had a pharma lunch all these sorts of things can be asked but they're not very interesting questions to me and i don't think they advance the discussion at all i don't think there's any takeaway message from this I don't know what the right rate of screening is. I wonder if we, what we really need for some of these cancer screening tests are larger, better, cleaner, randomized control trials that ask, what is the impact of mammography in 2019 with advances in treatment and adjuvant therapy? Uh, does it still have any cause-specific mortality reduction? Does it still have a cause-specific mortality reduction? Does it have an all-cause mortality reduction? Does it help? Does it not? That these are kind of more fundamental questions that ought to be asked before we ask whether or not it varies by the time of day somebody is seen in clinic, noting, of course, that people don't get the time of day assigned to them at random. They get to choose their time of day, and different people have different preferences about when they want to wake up and go to the doctor's office. Um, the other thing I would say is that I do find it hard to believe that there is not somewhere in this world a healthcare system that does actually allocate initial intake PCP appointments randomly and that one could kind of use that as a natural experiment if one actually cared about this question, which frankly I, I think is not the most pressing or important question. And so what I really wish, my meta sort of wish, is that primary care researchers who have the skill set partner with specialists who may have questions that I think are more tractable or more amenable to this kind of work and ask questions that are more impactful and use the skills to really answer some things that ought to be answered. Okay, well, on that positive note, let me switch gears. All right, the last paper I'm gonna talk about. This is a paper by Alex Drillin and colleagues. Exceptional responders with invasive mucinous adenocarcinoma is a phase two trial of bortezomib in patients with KRAS G12D mutant lung cancer. Uh, the KRAS G12D mutation, which is a mutation that you ought to know because it's the mutation that is very likely to be seen in people who have a RAS mutation who happen to be non-smokers or, or low-frequency smokers. Um, this is a very interesting study. This is a, I, I really, I really like this. And I like it because it's, it's not a story that ends um, with a ringing note of success. It actually ends, I think, rather soberingly. It's a negative study. But the authors here do something that not a lot of people do. You see, when we look at cancer medicine, we're increasingly getting genomic data because the horse is out of the barn with broad-scale NGS, which is being performed rampantly. And people are treating people with different mutations with lots of off-label drugs. Um, and in the course of that, they may see some exceptional responders. And when they do, that may reinforce them doing that over and over again. They may write a case report on it. Others may see that case report and use that case report to justify their treatment patterns. And thus, Many, many patients can be exposed to experimental therapies for their tumor and mutation um, on the basis of the anecdotes of one or two people who did well somewhere under the care of someone. 
And the net result may be a lot of people get exposed to a drug with a certain mutation, a certain tumor type, who don't do well, but that information is not collected or translated and communicated to future people, so future people continue to be exposed to the drug. Enter this really nice paper by Drillin and colleagues. Um, and, I, and I first saw this um, through the, a nice thread written by Greg Riley. I'm going to try my best to tell this story. I think it goes back 20 years ago when at Sloan Kettering they ran a phase one clinical trial of bortezomib. At this time, bortezomib had had some um, you know, really interesting work that I think was being done by Ken Anderson and it had not yet found its home in myeloma. Um, and it was being tested in a phase one clinical trial in solid tumors. The authors find there's a patient with bronchiolovular carcinoma, BAC, who has a dramatic response. There's some other case reports of people with BAC who do well with bortezomib that leads to a phase two clinical trial. And that phase two clinical trial is unfortunately quite negative. It had a response rate of 5%, which back in those days and still today, although it less appreciated, that's a, a low response rate and that's a negative study. Uh, years later, Riley notes that there's another patient at Sloan Kettering who's on a clinical trial of brotezomib and happens to have BAC, and this patient has a dramatic response as well. And now they genotype patients, and they find this patient has a KRAS G12D mutation. That's a mutation frequently seen in low smokers or never smokers. They go back and sequence the original patient at Sloan Kettering, whose tissue they still have on file, and they find that person also had a G12D mutation. So now they have two patients with G12D, bronchial carcinoma, dramatic response to bortezomib. Now, this is where many people would have stopped. They would say, we have two patients, elegant story, drug, mutation, and a bunch of basic sciences emerging over this time. We are learning that RAS modulates NF-kappa-B. Bortezomib, of course, plays a role in NF-kappa-B pathway. Um, side note, uh, when I was a third-year medical student, the absolute first presentation I was asked to give was on bortezomib in multiple myeloma. And I was fresh out of two years of step one studying. And I remember giving a presentation on I-kappa-B, NF-kappa-B, and the role of proteasome inhibition. And it was a very technical, draw-out-the-pathway kind of presentation. And I remember looking into the eyes of the resident and the intern, who were quite disinterested with this presentation, although the attending, to be fair, was quite interested. It was an oncologist attending. Um, and in retrospect, I see why they were quite disinterested, and I, I wish I could have apologized. I wish I could apologize to them because they cared probably most about the daily clinical care of that patient, and not having some newly minted third-year medical student go on a long story about molecular pathways and drawing a cartoon, um, and they didn't really care about that, and they would have cared if I had instead uh, answered a more relevant clinical question. So in retrospect, I would have done that differently, but I didn't know any better at the time. I didn't know what the hardworking residents would have wanted to hear, but now I do, but it's 12 years too late. Well, on that positive note, back to this story. So Riley and colleagues, I think a lot of people would have stopped there. They would have said, we have two patients. They both responded, bortezomib, same tumor type, same mutation. Let's write up a case report. And that case report would have been published. And once it was published, a lot of people out there in the community who are sending their F1 CDX would be finding this mutation. And those people would be saying, let's try bortezomib. And then some people may say, let's try it even in people who don't have BAC. Maybe they have adenocarcinoma. But if they have the RAS G12D, it's worth a try after all, because there's this case report that came out of Sloan Kettering. But Greg Riley and colleagues, and Alex Jordan and colleagues, they did not stop there. They did the step that doesn't get done. 
That's the step of you have the hypothesis. You think you have the biomarker. You think you understand the pathway. Let's put this to the test in a future prospective study. And so they did a phase two trial of bortezomib enrolling never or light former smokers with KRAS G12D, mutant non-small cell lung cancer. And what did they find? Only one out of 16 or 6% had partial response and there was no CR. So they think, oh, well, maybe it's not the G12D in and of itself. And they do some sort of post hoc study where they make the argument that maybe you also need wild type P53. Okay. But they acknowledge that that's also hypothesis generating and that now maybe one could go forward and do another study asking whether or not it's the combination of the two, a wild type P53 and the RAS G12D that's really necessary for this to work. Or maybe it's not, maybe it's even more complicated, or maybe it just so happens that this is a, um, you know, the low frequency uh, response rate that tends to be seen in, in all sorts of settings um, and is actually not something that can be scaled up or leveraged. That's also a possibility. So they publish this paper. It's a negative paper. They conclude the following. Exceptional responses to bortezomib can be achieved in KRAS G12D mutant non-small cell lung cancer, but KRAS G12D mutation alone, however, is not a robust predictor of a response. Such a good conclusion. So why do I highlight this paper? I highlight this paper because the authors deserve a lot of credit. And the authors deserve credit, and the authors are true scientists in the sense that um, they took a clinical observation, they developed a hypothesis, they took more data that supported that hypothesis, and then they tested that hypothesis prospectively in a different cohort of patients. That last step is what separates them, I think, from 99% of people who would have merely published the case report and that would have changed practice at a micro level, but micro albeit real level, and the correct study, the phase two study, would not have been done for many years. And so the authors, to some degree, are publishing a paper that constitutes translation failure because they failed to translate bortezomib and KRAS G12D mutant non-small cell lung cancer. Many people would view it as a negative study. But because they did the right study upfront, they have averted a medical reversal, which is doing something for many years only in retrospect to know you, you were probably mistaken. And they probably benefited a lot more people who might have undergone this treatment um, over the years based on a case report um, who now... Uh, know that the response rate is quite, quite low. And then the other thing they've done as true scientists is they've developed another hypothesis which perhaps could be tested in the future. This is the exception and not the rule, I think, to off-label NGS. And I think that's what distinguishes these authors and that's why this paper is notable. And on that positive note, we're going to turn to the interview with Dr. Chris Booth. I'm back here in plenary session mobile command unit. <laughs> I call it a mobile command unit, but Dr. Booth and I are on a drive. We're going to check out one of Oregon's prize waterfalls. Now, this is the speaker's request, I want the record to state. When we have a visiting guest dignitary like Dr. Christopher Booth visiting us from Queens College in Kingston, Ontario, uh, we aim to please here in plenary session. Um, let me give you a little introduction, uh, Dr. Booth. Dr. Booth is a respected oncologist who did his training at Princess Margaret and then went back, sort of homecoming to Kingston, Ontario, where he had trained earlier and is now professor of medicine and the Canada Research Chair. He does very prominent and important work in health services research, uh, thinking about the cost and value of cancer drugs, thinking about the endpoints that matter to patients, thinking about patient communication. I think he's a true scholar in broad cancer health policy. Um, he 
clinically practices in both GI and GU malignancies. Uh, he just gave us a wonderful talk, which I think you'll all be listening to as a bonus episode of Plenary Session. And uh, you know, it's really privileged to be able to talk to him. So Dr. Booth, thanks so much for coming here to visit us. Thank you, Vinay. Thanks for hosting me. Uh, it's I've never been to Portland, Oregon before, and I've heard it's a beautiful place. And I appreciate the, uh, the post-Grand Rounds um, adventure we're about to undertake on the waterfall hike. So thank you for having me. No, it's our pleasure to have you out here. I'm going to do my best to host this podcast while driving you free from car accidents to this location. <laughs> Where did I want to start? I guess I wanted to start a little bit by, um, you know, talking about kind of how I first got interested in your work. The work you had done, I think, in the end of the last decade, where you started to study clinical trials, both in terms of what have been the changes to pivotal randomized trials over time, uh, and how that has affected both sample size, power, the deltas that we've been capturing in clinical trials, and also what are the endpoints we care about. I wonder if you kind of walk us through some of that work and what you found. Sure, thanks Vinay. So this um, work evolved from a series of projects done with uh, two of my mentors, Ian Tannock at Princess Margaret Hospital and Elizabeth Eisenhower at Queen's at the uh, Canadian Cancer Trials Group. Who listeners will know is the first author of Resist 1.1, is she not? Correct, yeah. correct. Um, and so the first project actually was with Dr. Tannock, and, and as I was telling the story at Grand Rounds this morning, I was uh, a resident in Ian's clinic and presenting a new consultation, uh, early stage breast cancer, and this was around the time the ATAC trial had come out, and Dr. Tannock asked me for my management plan, and I told him that we should put the patient on adjuvant and astrazole, and he looked at me and said, well, why not tamoxifen? And I said somewhat cheekily back, I said, well, Dr. Tannock, didn't you read the ATAC trial? And astrazole is far better than tamoxifen, and, and he looked at me and shook his head, and said something to the extent of, young oncologists are increasingly impressed with smaller and smaller benefits. And so I said, but Dr. Tannock, do you have any data to back up that statement? He said, no, but you're gonna find some. And so that <laughs> led to this 18-month project I did with my friend and colleague, Dave Cheskon, who's now a staff physician at Princess Margaret, where we uh, reviewed 30 years of pivotal clinical trials in the major tumor sites and the major journals of that era. And we tracked changes in study design methodology, endpoints, effect size, and uh, research funding over those three decades. And came up with a number of interesting observations. The first is um, that, not surprisingly, trials became more multi-center and international in scope. Uh, over time, there was a tremendous increase in the sample size of trials. In the early days, the median sample size was one or 200 patients. And then in the more recent era, we became to see uh, mega trials with median sample size of 800, 1,000, and beyond. Um, the other thing was there was a shift in endpoints. In the very early days, uh, response rate was the endpoint, but then there was a period where survival-based endpoints were prominent, and then more recently there was a shift towards surrogate endpoints for survival. And then the, the main finding from that first piece of work uh, was that Dr. Tannock was right. Um, we found that over time the relative benefit of new drug versus old drug did not change. However, what did change is the proportion of trials with a statistically significant p-value. And so the p-value had a lot more zeros behind it in the modern era, largely because of the increase in sample size. And because of that, when we graded authors' endorsement of the new treatment, they were much more likely to strongly endorse their new treatment as the standard of care, despite the fact that there was no um, substantial increase in effect size over time. So that, that was kind of my first um, bit of work in this space. The other interesting finding was it was one of the early papers in oncology that uh, 
delineated the concept of sponsorship bias. This had been shown in, in some myeloma work um, and obviously in cardiology uh, before um, our piece of work, but we showed that as the um, over time there was a market increase in the proportion of trials funded by industry and that independent of the p-value and the effect size, industry-funded <coughs> trials were more likely to be considered positive. Mm. I, I remember one of the things that struck me in, in the follow-up publication, the Annals, the paper by Kay that you're the senior author on, was that you know the industry's role changed dramatically in these decades. Uh, in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, maybe 10% of clinical trials were in parts funded by the industry. Fast forward to 2010 and it's upwards of 90%. So the industry is really running the lion's share of the clinical trials agenda. Absolutely, yes, yeah. I guess one of the consequences of this that I wonder if you think about is you know, what we often see is um, we see imbalance in the trials agenda, both that there's so many areas where there are important questions that are absolutely not being addressed in any meaningful way. On the other hand, we have 20 PD-1 and PDL one drugs being tested in over 1,000 clinical trials with, you know, participant enrollment projection of 200,000 participants. Um, has this to some degree been shaped by the sponsors? choosing, you know, where they want to shine the light from the lampposts? I, I suspect yes. I mean, I think there's no question. First of all, I think it's, um, in the current era, it's, it's uh, at least in Canada, without industry support, it's difficult to imagine how clinical trials would be done. There just isn't grant funding to support the number of questions we want to ask. Having said that, I think we've overshot, and as you mentioned, there's so much multiplicity and duplicate clinical trials being done to pursue uh, industry's objectives that we, I think, have lost um, some perspective on, on trials that ask questions that matter to patients and to health systems. To Further to your point, um, I'm one of the co-PIs on a lifestyle intervention, an RCT of exercise, and so there's a lot of very, very important uh, patient and system level questions that really are of very little interest to industry and so finding the sweet spot between um, having alternative sources of funding to support this work is certainly I think a pressing priority. You know I didn't do what I usually do which is force you to take us through your academic history so let's do that I, I, I want to go through. Sure. You did your undergraduate in, at Queen's? Yes. So I, Kingston, yeah, so I studied uh, biology and history for three years as an undergraduate and then stayed at Queen's uh, for medical school. I, kn I knew fairly early on, when I was fairly young, I wanted to go into medicine. My father is a gastroenterologist, and um, I was interested in pursuing medicine. The other career I thought about uh, was being a history professor, a teacher, but uh, certainly was pretty keen on medicine from an early age, but uh, studied history because out of a, a passion for the subject. In fact, actually, that's where I learned how to write. Uh, studying the humanities uh, at an undergraduate level really focused my writing, and it didn't come easily to me. It's something now that I spend a lot of time doing in my own career is, is writing papers and grants. But in any case, um, and then during medical school, again, fairly early on, I knew I wanted to go into internal medicine. Um, but I, I, I enjoyed all of medicine. I love general internal medicine. So that was an easy decision to go into internal medicine. And then from Queen's, I went to the University of Toronto where in Canada we spend three years doing internal medicine training in, in the University of Toronto system. So that was predominantly St. Michael's Hospital, Toronto General Hospital. Um, and again, I, I actually loved all of my rotations and had a difficult time deciding what to do beyond my core medicine training. So I actually, my career path initially, so in, in, in Canada, early in your third year, you go through another match, which is where you choose your subspecialty or you choose to focus on um, general internal medicine. And so uh, the plan that I had was that, in fact, I I'd interviewed for this, was I was going to do critical care and palliative care. 
and I'd actually interviewed already for ICU positions and the thought process at the time was that I enjoyed my ICU rotation like many students do. The physiology and the excitement and the medicine was was um, was very stimulating and I also enjoyed uh, the doctor-patient relationships inherent in palliative care so I thought that would be kind of a good uh, career balance. So I think it was it, there wasn't really anyone doing that at the time combining the two. So I'd interviewed for ICU uh, oh, wow. in October of my third year and then by happenstance November 1st of my third year I started an outpatient elective rotation at Princess Margaret Hospital and in, in those days in general Did you choose that? yeah I, I actually okay. had to go out of my way to choose it and I must admit I don't remember exactly what prompted that because in, in that era any oncology experience that we had in general medicine was really the inpatient unit which is a very different world than right. the outpatient clinics right. and so for a number of reasons I, I, I randomly decided to do this and I recall after my second day of clinic leaving the clinic room I did I did some clinics those two days with Ian Tannock Jennifer Knox and Natasha Lale and I remember after clinic one day walking down the hall and this will this will kind of give your listeners an idea of the era I, I put a quarter in a payphone and I called my wife and I said Celeste I think I want to be an oncologist. And she said, well, that's great, Chris, but you've been doing it for two days. You, know, you should probably think about it. And I said, no, no, I have to decide right now. The applications were due six weeks ago. Wow. And it was this amazing transformation. And I literally did. The next day, I have to go and ask for letters of reference from people. And um, I, I, I ended up going to the oncology. You know, I only applied to Toronto because it was so last minute. And I walked into this very intimidating boardroom for the interview. And uh, Ian Tannock was one of the interviewers, and Scott Barry was a number of people who I've since become very close with at the time, didn't know them very well. And the first question at the table was asked by Dr. Tannock, and he said, uh, young Dr. Booth, please tell the committee what brings you to this table at the 11th hour. <laughs> and it was, it was intimidating, but I think he knew that it was, for me, this radical change was based on the very rich and real doctor-patient relationships that take place in, in the cancer setting. And it was, uh, that, that for me was it. After two days of being um, part of these privileged discussions and seeing that for that moment in time, that was probably the most important part of that patient's day and maybe their week. And in some ways it could be uh, one of the most critical moments of their life. And to be part of that and to try to shepherd them through that process to me was incredibly gratifying and something I knew that I could spend the rest of my career doing and, and having fulfillment from. So for me, that's how I ended up going into oncology. It's funny you, you know, you say, um, because I feel a little similarity to you, which I'll, I'll say in a second, but a few things you said caught my attention. Um, you know, you were, you were also a history student in college. I see that in your work because you are a student of history in the sense um, many, many people daily use progression-free survival. Very few of those people have actually gone back to research where did this come from? Where do those dimensions come from? What was the work by Zubrod, the work by Charles Mortel, etc.? And, I, and you, I happen to know that you're quite familiar with that history and, and the history of trials. You're, you're familiar with the history of what were the seminal oncology trials. You've done so many papers sort of t tracing us through that history. In a way, um, I still see that flavor in your work, and I think that's one of the things that makes your work so strong. Um, and then, you know, the points you were saying about what brought you in oncology, I, I feel, you know, a, a sort of a, a strange similarity, again, because, you know, I was torn in my internal medicine training in cardiology between ICU medicine, which I actually started to like a great deal. And, you know, ICU medicine is quite rewarding and it's physiologically complex and it's uh, the evidence base is interesting and evolving um, but one of the things that made me kind of go in the oncology direction from ICU 
um, in my mind at least, was the feeling that the oncologist is sort of the person that the patient and the family really develop such a strong bond with. And it's not to say that the intensivists aren't great clinicians. They're great clinicians. Their bedside manner is often superb. But just by virtue of the fact that often they meet someone in those um, desperate hours in this acute setting, they don't have the luxury of having had a long relationship. And so to me, it kind of felt like they didn't always have the same relationship that, a, say, a primary oncologist has with the patients. Did that kind of play into your thinking? Absolutely. I mean, when I think back on it now, I know that the physiologic um, elements of, of that area of medicine would have been captivating for a period of time, but I really would have missed that deep doctor-patient relationship that we build in oncology and, and exists in other areas of medicine, but I found it very pronounced in, in cancer medicine and having the continuity um, to, to follow the patient um, uh, during uh, and, and after treatment that is something for me that I know is, is, is a very important part of, of the practice of oncology. In your lecture today, that I think some of these listeners will have listened to the lecture because we're posting it as we speak uh, as a bonus episode. Um, you know, you come back to that statement that Ian Tanak says, which is, you know, what do you call a drug that improves progression-free survival, adds toxicity and cost, but ultimately doesn't show that it improves overall survival? We've had many such drugs. Um, Avastin in breast cancer, propelled by E2100 and then Ribbon 1 and Avato, really showed there's no OS benefit. And the PFS benefit is much smaller. Um, you know, I hate to say it, but even the, um, the cyclin uh, 4,6 kinase inhibitors like pavlocyclin, which show tremendous PFS benefit and there's huge enthusiasm. And now we see Paloma 1, although there is perhaps a trend towards a difference in OS, it doesn't meet statistical significance. We see this with Everlimus and Eximestane. We see this with, as you pointed out in the New England Journal in the letter, Olaparib against standard of care for triple negative breast cancer. Um, I think so many oncologists out there say that these are, these are drugs with pluses and minuses. In your talk today, you say these are harmful drugs. Why do you feel like it's not just plus or minuses, this is actually net harm? Yeah, I remember when I came into oncology, I really had no experience in cancer medicine, so I approached it almost as a layperson. And I remember sitting in the conversations about the consent discussion and the benefits and pros and cons with some very skilled clinicians that would explain to the patients or explain to me afterwards the magnitude of benefit. And I was actually floored by how small the benefit was of many of the treatments that are considered standard of care. And of course, you're torn as the clinician or if it's your family member, because obviously, um, at one element, uh, even a small incremental gain uh, ha might have relevance in that patient's life. But if it comes at a cost, and I don't mean financial cost, but the patient's level, if it comes at a cost from toxicity or quality of life and, and, and lost opportunity cost because they're sitting around waiting in the clinic because we're running three hours late, then I, I believe there, it does come um, with, with, with some significant downsides. And I think that, I mean, you've done a wonderful job in your own body of work. Um, really trying to explore what is it that's driving uh, adoption of new therapies, approval of new therapies, and I think that uh, the bar is, has unfortunately dropped very, very low, and that doesn't mean that we haven't had some successes. Certainly, um, a lot of what we do in solid tumor medicine, and perhaps even more in, in hematology, has had a transformative impact on the lives of our patients, but I worry that there's a not insignificant amount of standard care which offers very low value and very small benefits, if any, to patients. Yeah. And you, um, uh, you and Alan Detsky recently in Nature Abuse Clinical Oncology wrote that paper. Um, I forget the title. It's like, why are we all drawn, the different constituencies drawn, to marginal 
to minimal to perhaps even no value interventions. What was the title of that paper? Why are we drawn to low value care? Why do patients get well, care? Well, well, well. You should ask your ghostwriter, Dr. Booth. <laughs> Why do patients get care with small benefits? Yeah, it was something to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And we'll edit that out. No, 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 no. I'm not editing that out. <laughs> I, know, yeah, I, know, yeah. I know you wrote it. But, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, why do patients... Well, we, we tracked through it. And some yeah, of yeah, it is... Yeah, um, that, yeah. Some of it is that there's an inherent... Um, cognitive bias for both patients and their families and physicians that it's better to do something than to do nothing. The error of commission rather than omission. And it is difficult to have conversations um, at the time of progression and to say that we're going to focus on symptom management. Those conversations can sometimes be more difficult than simply saying this treatment stopped working, we're going to move on to something else. The idea that there's lost hope um, and I think that drives a lot of it. At the end of the day, the, the physician, um, you know, we don't like the feeling that we can't help our patients. And so even if there's something that has a small gain, there's that, I think, cognitive bias driving it. It's also, I think, that we as oncologists don't do a very good job of explaining to our patients the magnitude of benefit associated with therapies. We might explain the side effects. Um, but and we don't help ourselves when we use language like improved progression-free survival because I can tell you that most patients only hear they only hear the third word in that term, which is yeah. survival. Yeah. And you know, many oncologists we have a hard time really wrapping our head around PFS. And, and you can imagine a patient who's feeling unwell and who's hearing this for the first time understands that they're going to live longer if they have this treatment. So I think actually fundamentally, um, we have approved drugs with small benefits. We've allowed surrogate endpoints to creep into standard practice, and I think that we don't take enough time and put enough energy into making sure that our patients really understand the extent to which a treatment will benefit them. And I found that actually as I've become more experienced in my own clinical practice, and I have, I think, very honest discussions with patients, and I give them median survival gains, and when I tell them that in the fourth line setting for metastatic colon cancer, we have a pill that might um, you know, help them live for an extra six weeks or might slow down images on a CAT scan by six weeks, they often look at me and say, I wouldn't want that. And so I think if, if this, this is like yeah, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. And this isn't, um, you know, there's always, this is a patient preference issue. So all patients are going to value different magnitudes of benefit in a different way. But I'd say that the vast majority of patients, if you speak to them um, and using terminology that they can understand, you take the time to answer their questions, uh, they're often not interested in things that are going to add toxicity costs, take them away from their family and have very minimal benefit. That's one of the things that I don't think we talk enough about, which I don't want to spoil some of the work that I'm trying to look at, but one of the things I want to capture is for certain diagnoses, um, what percent of the time uh, that somebody has with a life-limiting condition like often metastatic solid tumor is, uh, is actually spent seeking health care, waiting in the waiting room, getting the health care, going to the appointment, calling for the MRI, calling for the PET scan, um, you know, with what precious little time may be left, what burden are we imposing? Um, and is the benefit of our therapy enough to offset that burden? That's something I struggle with. And I, I would love to see kind of empirically captured for lots of things from leukemia, which is something that the therapeutic burden is huge because often patients have prolonged cytopenias that require prolonged hospitalization. Um, to something like solid tumors, um, particularly in the United States where we often don't have perhaps as much social support as we would, we would wish we would have. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, let's just talk through a drug 
that that I think you know well, but that I'm sure you know well, Avastin and colorectal cancer. So this is a drug that I think is, you know, interesting. Um, right off the bat, Avastin clearly has toxicity, particularly if you've had a cardiovascular event or an embolic event and you have hypertension. It has some toxicity. It's not as the worst, most toxic cancer drug. It's not the most toxic regimen, but it's not an inert compound. Um, it, wherever it has been studied, which has at least been 70 randomized control trials, maybe 100, maybe 200, something that kind of randomized control trials, every single tumor type, it pairs well with any other backbone chemotherapy drug. In a setting like colon cancer, we had initial success from the Hurwitz paper of IFL, plus or minus Bev, you're nodding, that shows, you know, there's an improvement of overall survival in the IFL study. We had Len Sauls a couple years later in the JCO, I think 2008, full Fox plus or minus Avastin. There was a PFS gain, but there was no OS gain in that trial. Um, despite the fact that full Fox and now full theory, which isn't IFL, but full theory is different, um, are really the standard backbones. And my guess is since you're in Canada, you prefer full theory? Correct. Yeah. yeah. We in the States have a full Fox tendency, but I think if one thinks more about it, I tend to lean full theory in my own thinking because the, uh, the neuropathy can Yeah, we like to avoid the neuropathy yeah. for as long as possible. And even though full theory, of course, associated with the diarrhea, that I think is more manageable than neuropathy. And if that neuropathy of oxali is chronic, it's quite debilitating. Yes, and yeah. I think there are few things people complain more about. So, so you have this drug that, you know, with the, with the backbone we're actually using in the U.S. has not shown a survival advantage. Now we have second-line data. All of the second-line trials in my mind are very difficult to interpret because in the majority of these second-line studies, which we now have for Avastin, for Ramucirumab, and for Flibercept, um, some fraction of patients were on Avastin in the front line. In the, in the Bevacizumab study in the Lancet Oncology, it was, I think it was 100%. Ramucirumab and Flibercept, I think it's like 50-50, 50% of patients. So these are all studies that show in the second line, the agent confers about a 1.5-month survival advantage. Um, but again, it's hard to know if that would be true um, if those patients had never been exposed to VEGF therapy in the front line, uh, these all assume they had been. So knowing that they had been, it's better to probably continue, but should you have done it in the first place is a question I still have. So I guess I'm kind of just talking to give the listeners some background here. I urge them to look closely at the Avastin studies and also that study Bright, which we can talk about, which is the observational data that kind of overestimated the benefit. But when you look at a drug like Avastin across colon cancer, and you look at these studies that, at best, they show marginal benefit, but at other places, they may show no benefit at all. How do you think about that as a doctor? And how do you talk to somebody about that and counsel them about what, whether or not it might be right, whether or not they would want to pursue it knowing what you know? Yeah, those are great points, Vinay. So uh, it's interesting because when the uh, full Fox Bev data was presented at ASCO, I was, I think it was 2008, uh, around that era, I had just transitioned from research fellow to full-time faculty. And I remember sitting in the ASCO presentation, and actually I got up to the microphone and asked Dr. Saltz a question to ask him, you know, do you think it's possible that uh, when bevacizumab was combined with less active cytotoxic backbones, it offered greater benefit in the modern era, perhaps uh, it has negligible benefit. And he was uh, quite gracious in his response. And in fact, I followed up with a letter to the editor, and I I keep that in my kind of history of career development file folder, because he wrote back a very uh, very nice uh, letter um, with a slightly different perspective, but he's uh, obviously got a very common sense approach to many of these things as well. And I think that in the modern era, the added benefit of bevacizumab in the first line setting is negligible 
unpredictable at best. And um, again, this is where I have some tension between not being a total outlier in my practice, because if it was up to me, I probably wouldn't even use the drug. That's but it's right. a standard of care, it's endorsed by guidelines, uh, most of my colleagues uh, are using it, and so I've kind of found a middle ground where I use it if there's no contraindications, but certainly if there's a whiff of any <coughs> potential contraindication, I don't use it, and if I'm in the gray zone, I actually, I, in the last year I've had a handful of patients where they've had recent surgery or a pulmonary embolism or something, and I might start with fulfiry, and I say, well, we can add in a biologic later, and it, when it comes time that they're um, uh, not in the immediate post-operative setting, I, I have the informed consent discussion about bevacizumab, and I say, look, it might uh, you know, slow down growth in a CAT scan by a number of weeks. We don't know how much it improves survival. If it does, it's measured in, in weeks and not months. And uh, almost all of my patients say, oh, I don't want that drug. Because I've just told them there's a small risk of heart attack, stroke, bowel perforation. perforation and they right, almost yeah. always say, I, I don't want that. So again, it's the tension between what's considered standard of practice and what uh, I personally think of the evidence. But again, if you take the time with patients to discuss it, I think that you can often come to a common sense um, strategy. This is one thing that I think you're putting your finger on quite well, which is that um, you know sometimes when I'm very critical of the FDA and they approve some drug that I think you know really benefits don't outweigh harms, very marginal at best, and the harms are severe, they often fire back something like, look, we don't regulate the practice of medicine. Simply because we've approved it doesn't mean you have to use it. No one has a gun to your head saying you have to use it. But then the reality is that the practice of medicine is, no one is steering that ship, no single person, but the rudder is being held by many, many people, by the KOLs, who probably have a stronger grip on that, uh, on that, uh, on that wheel. Um, by individual practitioners who have a, a, a weaker grasp of the wheel, but may be pulled by reimbursement decisions. Like in the United States, they're often paid a markup of the cost of drugs. Um, so the rudder is being steered by many, many people. And, and the place it ends up with, which is, I think, widespread acceptance of bevacizumab, that, I think, it is not in line with my reading of the evidence. My reading of the evidence is in line with your reading of the evidence. And yet, even those of us who fall, who maybe disagree with where the rudder is being steered, I think as doctors, we have a strong psychological tendency to, as you put it, want to kind of get in with the standard of care. We don't want to deviate too much in our own practices, even if we feel strongly. And so what we often do is we try to um, write about it, try to publish some papers about it, try to change the way the whole rudder is. But I think this is a tension that is, I think, Part of why it's important that the regulators get decisions right. In Canada, you have another layer of regulation, is that right? Yeah, so a few points to follow up on that. So I think um, you're right. The the idea, I mean, Ian Tannock wrote about this in the context of an astrazole and tamoxifen, but the title of his commentary was The Emperor Has No Clothes. And it's almost as if some of these drugs, bevacizumab for colon cancer is one of the examples, is it just, it, it's almost a herd mentality. It gets for some reason, it gets endorsed in guidelines. We can talk about why that might be later. Um, and then it just becomes entrenched in, in common thinking. And it takes people, and, and, and you and Michelle and others do an excellent job of kind of raising awareness on these issues, to push back a little bit. And I think that um, patients would expect us to do that. They rely on us to recommend therapies that are going to help them live longer and, and live better lives, and also to be responsible stewards of the healthcare system. So I think that we, we have work that we 
need to do in that space. To follow up on your comment about the uh, regulatory and approval system in Canada, it's, it's quite different in the sense that there's, there's two levels that are uh, separate. There's the regulatory level, which is Health Canada, which decides if a drug is safe and whether it can be marketed in Canada. But then in the context of a universal single-payer healthcare system, we have a payer, a single-payer, which is generally the Ministry of Health or provincial cancer agencies that goes through uh, a health technology assessment um, uh, program whereby they appraise the benefits and they consider the cost and they decide whether or not they will pay for a drug. So those processes are separate, the regulatory approval for safety and the payer. And I think in some ways, it's similar to the model in the UK, it does allow for a check and balance and allows for some uh, perhaps careful consideration of whether the magnitude of benefit is, is warranted for both the patient's perspective and also from the societal perspective. So this is the the socialist system you live under. Correct. The, uh, correction. The socialist regime. Yes. That yes. You're, you're right. To. Yes. You're right. Okay. So, but, but oh, somebody in the United States um, may push back and say, "Well, um, your outcomes are worse as a result because you have this. You're smirking because you you probably disagree." Yeah, because I think that there's no data to show that accessing uh, many of these therapies, even in the context of a clinical trial, improves outcomes, and certainly in the context of the real world, I, I don't think anyone could show data to suggest that accessing these therapies with, with marginal gains would change population level health. I think like as just a thought experiment, if there was a nation, Denmark, who said we're never going to use Avastin in colorectal cancer, period, I don't think any analysis could ever detect that they have inferior survival. I agree. I if, agree. If they took that money and they said instead of giving instead of giving the Avastin in colon cancer, what we're gonna do in colon cancer, we're gonna make sure everyone who does a hemicolectomy or colectomy is a surgeon who's done at least ten surgeries, who is assuredly going to get me 16 lymph nodes or 13 lymph nodes. If they did that with the money, their survival would be better. What do you think? Yes, I agree. I you, agree. You believe that's yeah, probably the yeah, case? Yeah, I agree. And, and yet, how a society prioritize, this is what I think is one of the, the things, it's, it's, it's easy to be critical of someone and say, they're not paying for X. But what you have to reflect on is what you could do with the money you pay for X. And of course, one of the things you could think about is what could you do with that money for people with the exact same condition? But then you have to think broader and think, what could you do with that money for anybody with any medical condition? And what a society should do with that money? And these are very difficult questions. And I think it's it's kind of, I think, glib to say that, you know, some country doesn't pay for some drug, ergo care is bad. I, I personally really dislike hearing that although I hear it quite a bit. And I, I, some of this uh, and I is driven, I think, by humanity's um, obsession with the new and technophilia. And I think that there is, um, it, it, for some reason, we're hardwired to be drawn towards new and emerging technologies, right? The robots and the scanners and the new monoclonal antibodies. And there's just the assumption that new is better. And uh, new isn't always better, and sometimes it can be quite toxic and harmful. And so I think it's uh, a reason to have you know, a careful pause and to consider what can we learn from our past and how are we going to move forward in the future. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, that's very well said. And it's one of the things that kind of frustrates me about when I see Silicon Valley, quote unquote, tackling healthcare. Because I think people extrapolate their experience of technology into healthcare. When it comes to our cellular phone or the television in our living room, it's undoubtedly the case that the TV I have today is better than the TV I had growing up. And people think that healthcare must be the same way. Your new drug must be just as good as the TV has gotten better. But the truth is the human body and then the television, I think are truly not analogous. Our understanding of how the TV works and our understanding how the body works are of 
different order of magnitude. We understand everything about how the TV works. We understand perhaps just the most superficial glimpse of how the body works, despite all the you know incredible leaps and strides we've had over 100 years. And so, you know, you can go to the TV and think about what happens if I move a circuit. If you go to the body and think about what happens if I perturb a PF3 kinase pathway, and you think you can tell me exactly what's going to happen in every cell, you are a naive person because we don't have that understanding. But I want to come back to this bevacizumab a little more and see, kind of flesh out this other idea, which is if you look at bevacizumab in all these tumor types, randomized trials in breast cancer, no OS, PFS in one, but two, not so much, much smaller magnitude, uh, cervical cancer, 3.5 month OS, um, ovarian cancer, PFS, but no OS, uh, colon cancer, yes in Hurwitz, no in lens salts for OS, but some PFS gain, non-small cell lung cancer, negative with a cisplatin backbone uh, in, uh, in uh, Avail, uh, positive in the uh, Alan Sandler study with carbopaclitaxel and Avastin, and, you know, and if you look at the p-values in all these studies, one time it's p of 0.08, one time it's a p of 0.046, one time it's a p of 0.1. So I guess what I want to portray here is if one thinks about the entire clinical trials agenda of a drug like Avastin, are the, are the places where we think Avastin works simply the fact that you're going to get some p's of less, point, less, less than 0.05 when you're 100 randomized trials of a drug? And, sometime, and where it doesn't work, it's just the fact that you're gonna get some P's higher than 0.05 when you run 100 randomized trials of a drug. So I guess my question is, don't we need to look at the entire trial's agenda when we think about whether or not a drug works in a particular indication? I think you're right. And I mean, I think you've described this very well with the concept of multiplicity. And you know, you know from a simple mathematic point of view, if you do 20 trials, you expect one to, to randomly suggest the drug works. and. The, uh, the fact that the effect size for all of these hovers at a very, very marginal <coughs> level suggests that it's unlikely this is gonna be a blockbuster in any setting. Right. And I think one does need to wonder if, if um, the occasional positive trial is just a random high. And I think that's one of the things that, um, that more people would harbor that, that thought if we lived in an environment where um, there was more independence and less conflict is just my thought. Yeah, I would agree. you about this one of the themes of your lecture today was achieving the achievable I think um, I, I find it to, I think it's one of the most interesting themes there is in oncology today which is as much as we can talk about all of the drugs that do not yet exist that we wish we had we also have to talk about all of the people today who get care that is beneath what I think the care that you and I would provide in our clinics, which I think would be global best standard of care. Um, and you and I may have differences, maybe not you and I personally, but the average Canadian physician and the average oncologist in the United States may have some differences in their practice. Those differences are, in the grand scheme of things, minute. But the differences in care between the handful of nations with access to robust cancer care delivery and the ocean of nations with access to next to nothing is so, so vast. You talked about in your talk just about the delivery of morphine at the end of life and how that is so skewed. Um, if one were to reflect on society globally, uh, how can we bring up uh, so many nations who would, would really just don't have access to even basic services? 
Well, it's a complex question and uh, something I grappled with, but I, I think that, um, I mean, I agree with every, all the points you made there. I think that uh, the movement towards high value care really um, transcends international boundaries and in some ways I think has led to the, the movement and the growing interest in global oncology. And, and the idea, achieving the achievable, is something that my mentor Bill McKillop wrote about many years ago. It, it gets to the concept of uh, there is a large gap between evidence and practice. and the greatest public health um, benefit will come from systems that optimally deploy the knowledge we already have. And that the incremental gains um, of new and expensive therapies, while they may benefit patients in 10 or 20 years, the largest benefit um, now and in the next decade will be from uh, designing systems that deliver effective care that we already know about now. And I think that we see that both in high-income countries and in a, in a most pressing way in low- and middle-income countries. If we can reorient care and the research agenda and systems to focus on really the essentials of what matters to patients no matter where they live, which is living longer and living better lives, then that will help sharpen our acumen when it comes to clinical decision-making at the individual patient level, setting a research agenda, and at the policy um, tables as well. I want to ask your thoughts on, on hype a little bit, but I want to give you a little background. Um, maybe about a year ago, um, I had heard uh, crizotinib and EML4 rearranged non-small cell lung cancer um, was sort of hailed as uh, a game-changer medication. And I thought to my mind that, you know, this is an effective drug. It has a very high response rate, 80% plus, and a couple of randomized trials had shown um, you know, some uh, PFS benefits, certainly there's been some crossover in those studies. There's no doubt in my mind that it has an effect, a positive effect in that cancer. Um, but the question in my mind came, which is like, would you really call it a game changer? I started to look into it and I realized that you know, patients with ALK rearranged non-small cell lung cancer often decade or a little bit more than a decade younger than the average patient we see with non-small cell lung cancer. They tend to be younger, they tend to be non-smokers, they may often be women. Um, and I looked to see, you know, how many years of life are they losing by this diagnosis? And the answer was something like, shocking, it was something like 30 years of life lost. That that would be, if you weren't to receive this diagnosis, your life expectancy would be perhaps 30 years more. And then I looked through sort of all of the data I could get at the time. I think there's been some more data that's come out on, you know, what is the maximum potential, you know, upward boundary of what all of the ALK inhibitors add in this cancer type? Maybe we're talking something on like, you know, you know, 30, 40 months maybe. I mean, if you want to be very generous and say it's something like that order. And what I come back to is the fact that, that's you know, let's, let's just hope that we're getting the absolute most out of these drugs we can. We're adding maybe three years of life to someone. And, and part of me comes back to the fact that, you know, but we're still forgetting that we're still losing like 25 life, life years lost. That this is still a very lamentable diagnosis, something you know you, w you wish you wouldn't have had. Um, okay, and so it's being called a game changer. So as I was critical of, you know, why, you know, don't call it a game changer if you're going to leave so many years of life on the table and contrast that with imatinib, which is a drug that really does almost restore life expectancy. So I was making this point, and then somebody made the point to me, which was, we need to hype drugs. They made this point to me offline. I said, why do we need to hype drugs? So you don't understand non-small cell lung cancer. In a number of papers, we see that there's a high fraction of patients who do not even get referred to the oncologist. 
and I think there's data that came out by Adrian Satcher about Ontario's experience, you're nodding your head, yeah, that yeah. looks at what percent of non-small cell lung cancer patients never even get any therapy at all. And this person was pointing out that there has been historically a futility idea that a lung cancer diagnosis is a death sentence, and there's no point in you even meeting with an oncologist, it's a waste of your time, and thus some emergency medicine doctors or some doctors in the community, some other doctors who may diagnose somebody with probable lung cancer, discuss with the patient and tell them that you know you don't even need a biopsy because what's the point, sort of, it's really futile, futile attitude. Um, and they said to me that part of the virtue of the hype around these targeted drugs you know, we know that the majority of people aren't going to have the druggable mutation, but we part of the value of hype is that it diminishes the feeling of futility. It diminishes this this other trend. And I'm wondering how you think, what do you think about this? Because what, what do you think about the gap in outcomes between centers that get high, you know, regional referrals in non-small cell lung cancer and these kind of data that comes out that shows that very, a lot of people are not getting any, any treatment at all? And is hype the appropriate counterbalance to solve this problem? Um, I, I would say no. I mean, I think the the point that your colleague makes is well taken. There probably is some nihilism and, and uh, the idea of futility that does present barriers to care, predominantly in many emerging cancer systems. But I think that um, <coughs> the hype is not being driven by people's desire to address that. It's being driven for other reasons. And I think that there are many other negative consequences that hype and uh, unclear language and communication in the cancer space can, can lead to harm. And I think one of the best pieces of work written about this was a commentary by Len Saltz many years ago in JCO called Something About Hype, Hope, and the Promise of Oncology. And where he outlined a number of these topics, is something that we've done a bit of work on too, is that we're not very good at explaining things in terms that people can understand, but also we choose language that has different meanings. So one example was, um, this is a paper that one of my medical students was the first author on, Elizabeth Eisenhower was engaged to, this is probably about eight or ten years ago, where I was sitting in journal club one day and a colleague was presenting a paper in breast cancer and said the, um, the clinical benefit rate was 60% and my ears perked up and thought, wow, that's amazing, so these people feel better, 60% of them. Because uh, coming from the GI world, clinical benefit was an endpoint from the Burris trial where it had you know a composite of things performance status, weight, and pain, things that actually would have, you know, matter face validity, patient, matter no. to patients. That term's been hijacked. And, and, and then, so we started diving into this, and we realized that the term has been hijacked, largely in the breast cancer world, to, it's not a patient-centered endpoint, it's a tumor-centered imaging endpoint, it's a composite of stable disease <coughs> and response. And we went, we did an audit, we found that the vast majority of times that someone uses the word clinical benefit, it's not referring to the patient feeling better, it's referring to measurements on the CAT scan. And that's just one example And let me of, just flesh uh, that out a little bit, yeah. because actually, um, listeners will know there's complete response, which is the radiographic disappearance of, of all lesions and the normalization of lymph nodes, typically by resist 1.1. There's partial response, which is 30% or more shrinkage of the target lesions and no new lesions, of course, on resist. And this, the combination of the two percent of people with CR and PR is the response rate. That's historically been the metric. But what do you do in an era where response rates are dipping largely through the use of targeted therapy that may not um, generate much response, but possibly affects growth rate kinetics, they've been lumping in stable disease. And that's supposed to be called the disease control rate, but I think it's been increasingly mistakenly called the clinical benefit rate, which is a term that has historically meant the percent of patients who actually have clinical benefit feel better, um, as you were pointing out. And this is a very bad, uh, I think, thing to see. 
we have these people touting the success of broad-scale genomic sequencing saying 25% of people have um, CRPR or stable disease. And one of the things that really frustrates me is when you take patients who have gone through seven prior lines of therapy, I can promise you one thing, they're not going to have rapid progression. That's why they live long enough to be exposed yeah. to seven lines of therapy. And so what you have is a patient population whose growth rate kinetics are limited, and you're gonna have a prolonged progression time simply by the fact it takes a while for their tumor to hit 120%, even if there is no shrinkage. So your stable disease fraction is gonna be high. It's gonna be higher than in the clinical population in your clinic because you've selected these patients through elaborate screening processes for indolent biology. And so I think that looking at stable disease in an uncontrolled phase two study and touting that as some metric of success is incredibly foolish, it's delusional, uh, if you want to do that, you don't even need to run the study. You can just declare success. I'll just give it to you. Yeah. Uh, um, but but go on. You're, yeah. No, I was going to say, so yeah. two comments to follow up on that. So it's very misleading. It's misleading yeah. to our colleagues, and it's misleading to patients when we use that language. So, I mean, it's one of the, the anecdotes behind the paper. So I think we, we reviewed um, uh, every JCO paper that used the word clinical benefit. Yeah. We looked to see, was it the patient-centered endpoint as yes. per the BIRS trial or a tumor-centered? And we found the vast majority is tumor-centered. So we wrote the manuscript up and we sent it to JCO thinking, oh, they might be interested in this. And they said, no, we don't want it, but we'll publish a letter. So we said, okay, fine. So my medical student um, wrote it up and we sent it, the European Journal of Cancer published it. And then we sent a letter to the editor JCO alerting them of that and asking, you know, perhaps future editors and reviewers of papers should look carefully to see if the, the term is being used appropriately. And they published the letter, but the irony of it was in the exact same um, issue where they published the letter, there was a breast cancer study that originated from Canada using oh, clinical gosh. benefit rates. So it was kind of a serendipitous, serendipitous scenario. Um, the second piece of work that we've been doing recently looking at um, having honest descriptions of, of our endpoints with patients relates to the use of progression-free survival. Yeah, tell me about that. And so a number of us have had concerns about progression-free survival, both its validity as an appropriate surrogate for overall survival and also how we convey its true meaning to patients. And so um, together with colleagues at Queen's, Mike Brundage and Andrew Robinson, we actually did a trade-off exercise where we interviewed patients who um, are currently on palliative chemotherapy, so they know what palliative chemotherapy is all about, and we give them a hypothetical scenario um, where we outline the side effects of a new cancer drug, and we say, imagine your current treatment's no longer working, and we have another treatment, and here's the side effects, and it's a typical side effect profile, and we say, you know, unfortunately, this treatment is not gonna help you live any longer, and there's no evidence that your quality of life will get better, but what it might do is slow down the amount of time it takes for the tumor to grow on the CAT scan. And we set it up as a trade-off exercise to see at what point would patients flip and say they would want the treatment. We've started you know, 20 months, then 18 months, and, and go down. We never use the word progression-free survival right. because it's a difficult term to understand. Right. And this is just a pilot study that's been presented at uh, the ASCO Quality of Care Symposium, the manuscript's under preparation. But as, as we report in the abstract, it uh, became very clear that virtually every patient, there wasn't even a trade-off. They just looked at the research associate and said, what? Are you kidding? There's no way I would want that. Um, and that was like 17 of the 20 patients in this small series. Two patients said that they would um, accept the treatment for progression-free survival benefit of 12 or 15 months. And a single patient said they would do anything for any benefit. And of course, that, that shows the, the range of patient preferences that are out there. And so we have a grant under review now to kind of expand that and do that at multi-centers with, with 100 patients to really understand when you don't use misleading language, what do patients actually think of progression-free survival? 
that is a fascinating study, and I think that is consistent um, with some of my experience, which is that when you take the time to explain to someone what progression-free survival is, what DFS is, what OS is, and you really feel as if you, you know, you're doing some teaching, honestly, because it's almost like classroom teaching, um, and then you come back and you kind of try to tease out someone's preferences, I think you're often, patients are often astounded by, that's not what I thought when you told me that term. And when we talk about misleading patients, I, I hate this. I mean, I think that um, it's almost as if it is actively done and, and uh, people are complicit. I just want to point to the breakthrough designation. Um, this was, uh, this is the FDA's name for something that is not yet approved, that is being considered for approval. Uh, and they're saying this is, it's the breakthrough designation. There's a randomized study that came out by um, uh, the late Lisa Schwartz and, and Steve Wolishin in, in JAMA that says, when you tell somebody something's a breakthrough designation, they're gonna think it's better, yeah, even yeah. if you, all, all the facts are the same. Uh, that, is, um, that is how legislation has been hijacked, I think, by for-profit entities who've written that language. We use that language, and, and just kind of a testament to how misleading it is, I recently saw um, the pediatric oncology branch at the NCI said, uh, we just got the breakthrough designation for some, I don't know, Pete sarcoma drug. And I saw Ned Shopless, who's gonna be the commissioner of the FDA or is the, now the interim commissioner, he said, congratulations on bringing this to patients or something to that effect. And I wanted to tweet, but I thought better of it, to say, I, I hope you know that designation doesn't mean they've approved the drug, particularly if you're gonna be the commissioner of the FDA, I hope you know that. But I, I wanted to tweet that, but I thought better of it. Sometimes, you know, I do exercise some restraint on Twitter, contrary to what some believe. Um, and, uh, but, but, but it just goes to show you, I think, just how misleading that rhetoric is. Um, so we see that with the rhetoric uh, at the, everything is an unprecedented benefit. We did that paper to show that, you know, 20% of the time somebody says it's unprecedented. Well, I can promise you there's a precedent that's yeah, more, yeah, yeah uh, uh, miracles, revolutions, game changers, cures. You're hitting on progression-free survival. Clinical benefit rate is also often misstated. Um, why do we do this in oncology? I, I mean, my cynical side says that it's because people profit from that people being under that misconception. But I don't, I don't think that's the whole thing. You want to, you, you're, yeah. you, you think about it more broadly than just the cynical side. I think that, um, I mean, I think the, 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 the profit-driven industry effect, there's no question it drives that. I think it also has to do with, um, uh, you know, as humans, our unending sense of optimism, the fact that we want to see benefit in something. I think that's part of the reason why there's so often spin in uh, reports of clinical trials or research studies. And it's not necessarily, I think it's certainly there is an element of spin that is being driven by industry and their uh, profit, potential profit gains. But if someone's invested several years in a project and it turns out that it didn't give them the result they were hoping to, they're, they're just inherently going to be looking for some kind of way to justify the blood, sweat, and tears they just put in that project for the last three years. So I think yeah. the reason for the hype and the spin is, is, is multifactorial. Yeah. I, I do think that um, that's one of the disconnects between how we recruit people into oncology and the reality of being a good oncologist, or perhaps how we recruit in science and the reality of being a good scientist, which is one of the things that is always, you always hear when you, people ask a good scientist, like what drew you into the field? And it was almost always, um, you know, they, they were inspired by some tr transformational success. 
be it, you know, I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson say something, you know, inspired by the Apollo missions, uh, some, you know, inspired by Gleevec, inspired by, you know, some transformational drug. So you're bringing people into the field with this idea that, you know, that there have been inspiring things happen. And then the reality of science is that the majority of people who are really good scientists will never participate in anything that yields that level correct, of inspiration. Correct. And and that, I think, creates like a little temptation, I suspect, psychologically, to feel as if that you've succeeded and the easiest way to succeed is to declare yourself a success. I think we've said that with the inauguration crowds here in the United States, <laughs> the largest ever. Uh, of course, you know, if you declare it, so then so be it. Um, I wonder if that plays a role a little bit psychologically. I think it does. I think it does. And um, I think the listeners of Plenary Session should should know that I have a feeling that Dr. Prasad might be lost. We're now driving on no. a rural road <laughs> in a very small town in Oregon, and I don't see waterfalls anyways, uh, anywhere. So I'm not sure where we're going, but just thought the listeners would like to know that uh, he runs a good podcast, but his sense of direction might be off. <laughs> I have to get gas. That's the that's the challenge. And this is it's only one the mobile, gas mobile it's right there unit. though. Mobile command unit. It's right there. The mobile the mobile command unit has fallen short. Uh, requires more petrochemical fuel than than the than the, the regular station. Um, but you know, if I keep driving out here in the middle of nowhere, uh, you may start to worry if this will be your last podcast, Doctor Booth. <laughs> <Mo. laughs> it's the first podcast and last podcast. That's how. Run it on plenary session, but um, I promise you there'll be a waterfall at the end of this. All right, okay. I'm back here in the mobile command unit, and Dr. Booth has been convinced I knew where I was going because we have found gas. I have much greater confidence now, Dr. Prasad, because I can see the mountains in the distance, and if I listen carefully, I can hear the waterfall. So, hear, so I, I do believe we're on, we're on the road again. We're on the road again. Um, we'll be there quite shortly, and then we'll be hiking deep into the forest. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about um, you, because you had mentioned that, uh, that you submitted a paper to the JCO, a full manuscript, and they sent it back and said, we'll take it as a letter. You ended up sending it as a full manuscript to a different journal and then you kind of link to it with the letter in the JCO. This is the thing that um, I, I can't claim that I know all the answers, but I have gained a lot of experience in, which is how do you make these decisions and, and, and you know how to publish? So I'll tell you some of my biases and you tell me what you sure. think. One of my biases is um, there is no doubt in my mind that the impact factor is a flawed metric and that some of the traditional brass rings people chase in terms of journal publication, that doesn't always tell you what's good science, and some of your best papers are not going to be published in those journals. Some of the best papers, perhaps even your most cited papers, will be published somewhere that's not, you know, perhaps the, the most prestigious journal with the highest impact factor. Uh, some of the best work can be in a different journal. You shouldn't strive for that. At the same time, part of me says, part of me has learned that you have to balance a little bit in terms of, in my mind, getting the readers. Um, even though you can be critical of some of these big journals and some of their practices, they have a lot of readers and they have people who are going to be checking that journal out every week. And so sometimes when I'm faced with the choice of a full article in one journal or a research letter or a letter to the editor in another journal, I often over time have leaned towards taking the letter because I feel like, yeah, I don't get to get everything out there quite like I would like it to be presented, but I'll at least get people's attention to be on this topic, which I think is really gravely important and sadly no one else is talking about or very 
well, no one else besides Chris Booth is talking about any antenna, uh, you know, and and you know, a few people. How, what do you think? How do you, how do you advise your trainees? Well, it's uh, I mean, it's a good point. Most of the papers I publish now, uh, the first author is a trainee, and so some of it has to do with what their needs are for their career, and so if it's something that um, they need to publish uh, quickly because they're moving on or they have a deadline for an application, then we might um, target a lower impact journal where we're more likely to have um, it accepted rather than getting it turfed through numerous journals. I must admit I haven't explored the research letter route as much as I should have. I've probably done that a handful of times. But one thing I have not done, which I think might be to the detriment of getting my uh, thoughts and kind of research findings out there, is engaging uh, uh, with social media. And I've certainly seen um, through work that you and Vishal and others have done, the immense power of Twitter and social media to advance research discussions and findings beyond the confines of a medical journal that might only be read by a handful of people. And so I think that actually, uh, you know, in the coming generation, I think that that's going to be increasingly a source of way of disseminating scientific knowledge and, and research findings. But what keeps you off? Well, this is, um, I'm not entirely a Luddite, uh, but uh, some of it, well, most of it is really trying to maintain work-life balance. And I feel like I already spend enough time in front of a computer. And I also know that if I started getting really engaged in Twitter, I know that my personality is that I'd have a hard time shutting off. And I'd want to be engaged in debates, and I'd be quite keen to send comments back. And if comments came back in, I'd want to respond to them right away. So it's almost a self-protective mechanism to try to maintain um, a, a work-life balance. But in, in the early days, I thought, um, there's no role for, for medical Twitter anyhow. It's just frivolous and cheerleading. And actually, I must admit, I've come full circle in the last year. You have. And, and I, I completely, uh, you know, some of the papers I publish, I think the only person that reads them is my mother. <laughs> That's and, how I felt, And maybe yeah. the reviewer, if I'm lucky. But At um, least one of the three. <laughs> yeah. But I think, um, you know, it's amazing the way that you and Michelle have advanced dialogue and other people. I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't have a Twitter account. I don't follow it. Um, although Bichelle does know that I occasionally glance at it, I sit down at the World Wide Web and just type in Vinay Prasad Twitter, and then I read it that way. So I can kind of control when I see it and then walk away from it. So that, that's kind of my own personal reason for not engaging with it. But I think that um, when you think of the readership for some of these second or third tier level journals, which admittedly all of us publish in, um, in addition to the high profile journals, I think that it's an important way to get message and dialogue out there. Yeah, that's... Um that's. I mean, I I, uh, I don't disagree with your concerns about it. Uh, I think uh, I've I've gone through many ups and downs on Twitter, and and I definitely was in a period where I was engaging in too many debates, and it's it's potentially endless. And there are a few things that annoy me about it a great deal. One is uh, there's some there's so many people debating anonymously, and I find that to be quite annoying because you know I think credible debates you know who the debater is. Um, they have some track record and you can talk to them over time and have some consistency in it. I also think that the sheer amount of debate is is almost uncontrollable and now I'm quite selective and I don't engage the vast majority of things. And I try to turn it off as much as possible. Try to get what I think the value of it is, which is that you can actually reach people in a way you've never been able to reach them. Um, because for better or worse, um, well, mostly for worse, the kinds of issues that you know you and I are quite interested in, which we think I think are like fundamental to oncology, they don't get taught I think routinely as part of oncologic training. They, if people didn't train at Princess Margaret or Kingston, 
uh, or Queens or, or Oregon Health and Science University or, you know, a handful of places that have specific people who are interested in these topics, they're not going to gain much exposure to these things 10 years ago. Uh, but now, at last, I think there is a way for them to gain exposure. That's part of my motivation to this podcast, as I was telling you before, which was, you know, what if you could supplement the curriculum that medical students were getting, not just those that you happen to know, but anyone you could you could meet. So that's part of my motivation. But I do think that, you know, there's always a tension because some people are always wondering, you know, like, what does it take to be... Um, and I've actually had people ask me, which is like, you know, how do you get followers on Twitter? And I was like, I, look, there's, I don't know what the, I don't know if there's a magic recipe, but I think, you know, you want to be telling people information that they didn't know. That's something people value. You ideally want to do it in a way that doesn't bore them to death. And the more academics you do, I think lends credibility, but also gives you something to talk about. And, and some, you know, it's really, an, it's not... Twitter is not the scholarship, it's a mechanism to disseminate the scholarship. In my mind, although I know there'll be some of my pro-social media listeners who believe Twitter is a scholarship in and of itself. I'm not there yet, people. You're going to have to persuade me of that. Um, you know, and uh, Or podcasts are a scholarship in and of themselves. I'm not quite there yet. I think it's dissemination. But I think dissemination is something that we as academics have so often kind of ignored uh, because you know, for a generation, I think a lot of them were just trained that it doesn't matter, that's not your business. I agree, and I think we've done that to our detriment. Um, I think that, I mean, this podcast is, is I think, another you know, remarkable vehicle to engage um, listeners and people from all different walks of life and background to think um, about these issues. And I must admit, I'd never even listened to a podcast before, and I now listen to every episode of the plenary session. In fact, in Canada, it's considered mandatory for all medical trainees, and, and Parliament is about to pass oh, really? a law, which will be enforced by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, uh-huh. that, uh, that, that all, all Canadian trainees must listen to plenary session. And wow. I think it's actually a fun way to engage and, uh, and, and talk about ideas that probably have relevance uh, in many different uh, areas. That's something that you're able to do under the regime. Yes, of uh, course. So let's talk about cetuximab. Um, Cetuximab obviously has a role in colorectal cancer. Um, you know, you all in Canada did a lot of uh, work for cetuximab. I guess listeners may not, may not know the history of cetuximab, but I think a lot of the work on cetuximab uh, was done by John Mendelson, who ended up being the president uh, emeritus of, uh, president then president emeritus of um, MD Anderson. Uh, it's a kind of a notorious drug uh, because of Imclone, and uh, Zivi Fuchs and Martha Stewart and insider trading allegations when uh, the FDA gave a letter saying they weren't going to approve the drug and some people sold some shares, including Martha Stewart, rather quickly and that was insider trading, it was insider information um, and there was a number of prosecutions and payments around that so it kind of has that background but I think that's all, sec- that's all beside the point. Uh, what listeners should know is that this is a monoclonal antibody against EGFR it was initially thought that colorectal cancer, which often has high EGFR expression, will benefit from the use of the antibody in much the way trastuzumab benefits HER2, which is a very similar, which is a similar epitope. Um, and one of the things that we learned was it was a very, 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 very marginal drug when it came out. Very small OS improvement in a third-line setting. Um, and it was the Canadians that teased out the fact that it had something to do with a biomarker. That biomarker was KRAS, and now it's, ex- now it's been extended to extended spectrum RAS and, and BRAF mutation. And the idea is that if you have downstream sort of constitutive activation of the EGFR pathway, you don't really benefit from upstream blockade. 
And this idea has allowed us to tease out the group that we think benefits from the group in whom there's no benefit, perhaps even harm, because this is a toxic drug that gives you perhaps one of the worst rashes in all of, all of oncologic care. Um, so I'm wondering, I guess one of the things people should also know is from the time of the initial approval to the Canadian data, I think that was like about four or five years, was it not? Yeah. 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 And um, so I'm wondering if you want to talk a little bit first about that before I ask you about how you use it in practice. Um, you're familiar with this story. Didn't it come out of Kingston, Ontario? Yeah, so the um, the, the third-line study was uh, led by Derek Yonker um, at Ottawa and Chris O'Callaghan, who's uh, a methodologist and senior investigator at Queen's University, uh, where our, our national cooperative trials group is based. So formerly the NCI Canada Clinical Trials Group and now called the Canadian Cancer Trials Group is based in Queen's. And um, it was a joint uh, Canadian-Australian-led uh, study. And as, as you mentioned, the initial report showed a, a very modest or marginal gain. But uh, when they began to understand the biology, uh, it, it was kind of a clear home run in the sense that patients um, with uh, wild-type tumors uh, derived actually meaningful benefit. And it was, you know, probably one of the, unfortunately, one of the few examples where we've actually been able to understand the biology of our targeted therapies and identify a, uh, a reasonable biomarker to guide practice. So for many years uh, in Canada, it was standard to use in the third-line setting. And we've begun to shift it into the first line setting on the basis of a number of recent trials. Uh, and it's now funded in Canada, uh, in, in some provinces, not, not all of them, to be used either up front in the first line setting in, in wild type patients or uh, in the third line uh, refractory setting. And I must admit that, at least in my own practice, uh, most of my patients I'm now giving it in the upfront setting um, based on sidedness. Uh, predominantly because I just don't like to use bevacizumab, so I find it to be um, a more palatable option. <laughs> I guess I would say that um, I'm, my question with bevacizumab is whether it offers benefit in any line of therapy. My question with cetuximab is whether or not it should, it's not that it, whether or not it offers benefit in any line of therapy, I think it's one step up from that, but my question is whether or not the routine upfront use is preferable to the routine use in the third line. And I think if one looks across all the studies that have been published, that question has never been answered. Correct. Um, we, we don't know. We don't know. Yeah. Um, certainly, the one thing it does by routine upfront use is increase cost. And let's talk a little bit about that rash. It's a tough rash. It, it's a very tough rash, and the only kind of solace in it is we tell patients that it's a good it's a good biomarker itself of response. I don't know if that provides much um, condolence for what can be a very very difficult rash for our patients. And and one of the things I always wonder about that literature is that. Um, when I was reading that, so this is this classic question that comes up over and over in oncology because it's almost like a, a literature unto itself, which is for patients who get a drug with some toxicity, do patients who experience that toxicity have better outcomes? And I guess one of the questions you always have to ask when you look at that literature, which I know Dr. Booth is going to know well because he's an expert on this topic, is does it have immortal time or guarantee time bias? Which is that in order to develop a toxicity, you had to have one thing that somebody who had rapid progression didn't have the opportunity to have, which is time. You had to have enough time without having experienced an event like death or progression during which you could develop the toxicity. And so some of the work that when I look back at the original rash studies, I, I do worry if it suffers from guarantee. I, I think you're right. They, they yeah. probably do. Well, what I would say that would mitigate some of that risk is that the rash comes on pretty quickly. That's true. Um, yeah. Within a couple of weeks. And these are generally patients who certainly some of them will die within a couple of weeks, but most of them will not. So it's probably a little bit less prone to that. But I think it's. I, I think your point is well taken. And certainly for, for the trainees listening to the <laughs> podcast, the idea of immortal time or guarantee time bias is something that needs to be taken into account, especially 
especially with the increasing trend towards using um, real-world data to answer questions of comparative effectiveness. Yeah, I like to think that um, when I think about the threats of, you know, you talked about in your talk, which is that you think that perhaps the most precarious use of real-world data is the sort of comparative effectiveness studies, which ironically is the use for which it has the most enthusiasm. I fear because people know it's precarious and so they think they can actually make a lot of money from precarious data. Um, but I think there's three major threats. One is confounding, which you alluded to, which is that you may not know and you may not have measured all of the things that you need to adjust for. The next is guarantee time, which is that the way in which you're selecting patients may be building in guarantee time for one group and not the other, i.e. that they were destined to do better because they had to have done better to even be in that group. And then I think the third threat to causal inference is the threat of multiplicity. You know, bevacizumab is an example where randomized trials ha are mimicking observational studies because we're just running so damn many of them. But um, elsewhere in biomedicine, I think observational studies just can be run ad nauseum in duplicate. The same question in, you know, EMRs and your university, my university, and in NCDB. Uh, I agree. Yeah, I agree. And, and you get that kind of problem. But I wanted to ask you, um, I guess we can we can just move into the real world data discussion. You know, you wrote. Uh, I think it's been featured on this podcast. Uh, the best real world evidence paper to date, which is the Nature Reviews Oncology paper. Um, this is a voluminous, uh, I believe, two hundred reference. Yeah, it was a big piece of work. It's a big piece of work. It was the kind of paper that made you that made one feel two things. One, uh, I learned a lot. Uh, it made me feel several things. One, I learned a lot. Um, I thought it was a, I thought it was a monumental effort and a Herculean achievement, um, but and it also made me feel it was one of those papers that I was also glad I didn't do, <laughs> not because it wasn't the best work, because it really looked like it took a lot of your time, and and I just couldn't imagine how much time that took. How much time did that paper take? It did months and months, and uh, the editor that handled that, Diana Romero at Nature Reviews, deserves a huge amount of credit for for not only her patience but having a huge amount of input in. Um, the, uh, the revisions, the framework, and really the, the ultimate finished product. But it was, um, I mean, it was a hard paper to write. In some ways, though, it was quite gratifying because it was the last paper I wrote with my mentor, Bill McKillop, um, before he retired. And Bill really, um, who was a senior radiation oncologist at Queens and one of the forefathers of health services research, really, I had a 10-year period working intensely with him almost as an apprentice. And uh, it was at kind of just before he retired that we wrote this piece, which almost was condensing everything that he taught me in a decade into one body of work. So in that way, it was kind of fun. And of course, the other author was Sophia Karim, uh, who had been my research fellow at Queens and who is now a faculty at the University of Calgary. So it, 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 was, it was certainly a lot of work. And I guess what I like about this paper and what listeners need to know is that um, you know, real-world evidence is, it's not one thing, it's a category. It's, it's, it's something that you can use in so many different directions. It's a multi-purpose Swiss Army knife with 72 features on it. And what you do in this paper is you go through all 72 features, maybe not 72, but at least maybe 20, 30, ways in which real-world data has been used. And it's been used for everything from, I don't know, what is the frequency of a disease in a population? How, how many people with bladder cancer are there? If you have bladder cancer and you're 70 years old and you're diagnosed in Ontario, what is your survival? What is your survival in the trial? Um, what, is, what is the rate at which you undergo cystectomy? What is the rate at which you undergo adjuvant um, uh, platinum-based therapy? How often do you get cis-gem? How often do you get neoadjuvant dose-dense MVAC? Um, you know, you can use it in all these ways. And then you can also use it to say, um, 
how well do some doctors do compared to others? How well do regions do compared to others? You can also use it to say, um, where are, are there, um, as you talked about in your lecture today, socioeconomic gradients. You can lose it, use it to say, when drugs are used off-label, are they associated with different benefits? And that's the part that I think is, is most questionable. You really went through a lot of literature over many, many years. Um, did you know know all those papers before you said? I did, and I knew I knew some of them. I think you know Bill, uh, you know, forced me to sit down over many months and um, to think about all the different uses. And you know, we kind of presented a framework where it can be used to answer questions about patients, so we can understand the burden of disease, incidence, prevalence. We understand symptoms that patients have, the demographics. We can understand about uh, access to treatment, so underutilization, overutilization. Um, and uh, you know wait times things like that the quality of care the, the, the way that care is delivered is it concordant with guidelines um, is there abandonment uh, particularly in, in low and local countries for uh, care of children with cancer oh let's talk about that a second by abandonment you mean uh, there's a child with like ALL and that's curative and they're not getting all the it's cycles. very common unfortunately in many parts of the world it's remarkably common and that's only, you can only describe that with, with real world data. I see. And then beyond treatments, we can look at outcomes. We can discuss outcomes for rare patients. So the elderly having liver met resections for colon cancer, there's no clinical trial of that. We can see what is the practice and outcome in the real world. Rare events, so uh, you know, rare uh, or remote events that are not picked up in a clinical trial, which includes 150 Olympians who are followed for a few years, what about events that manifest five, 10 years later or at a higher rate in right. older, sicker patients in the real world? Let me just put like one point there. Um, you know, when people talk about like whether or not um, real world data can address safety, I, I often say something like, you know, we just saw these randomized control trials run with Revlimid containing or Imid containing backbones and myeloma, plus or minus checkpoint inhibitors. And they've been stopped universally by the FDA because increased death rate. And that's a small death signal in myeloma patients that led to the halting of these randomized trials. That's a signal you would never see in a real-world data set because it will be lost to the sort of secular improvement in mortality. Correct. But meanwhile, if you run, uh, if, if let's say checkpoint inhibitors did have some small survival advantage, but they caused you to have right humerus fracture. Right humerus, like only the right humerus would fracture, let's just say, you know, hypothetically. You would see that in real world correct, data. Correct. So it has something to do with like, if an event is unusual, not in the normal course of business, like subtrochanteric fracture on and bisphosphonate, that'll show up in an observational data set. But an event that's common, like death, you do need the randomization. Correct, right? yeah. correct, correct. There's no okay. question about it. So okay. I guess one of the main yeah. points we were trying to make in this review is that, as you mentioned, there's 72 things that we can do <laughs> with real-world data. Yes. And um, all of them are fraught with methodological limitations and the quality of data does not receive enough attention. And we're off, <coughs> we rarely have information about performance status, patient preferences, decision-making, smoking. We often lack disease information, extent of disease stage, etc. But for about probably 65 or 70 of the things you can do with real-world data, you can do a pretty good job of. Yes. And, yes. Um, and also, if, if you make a mistake, the impact is not devastating. Yes. If you report that the, um, the rate of underutilization uh, is 35% instead of 40%, it's really not gonna cause harm. If you report that, um, that you get the incidence wrong, it's, it's, it's not gonna have devastating consequences. When you get to the 70 second use of real world data, which is to compare treatment A versus treatment B, particularly if there's never been a randomized trial, yes. it is fraught with a number of methodologic biases, and if you get
get it wrong, it can have devastating consequences when practitioners begin to act on that information and give our patients treatments that do not offer benefit but in fact cause harm. And so that again is something, something that Bill taught me very carefully. Before we published any paper, we would pause and say, where could we have gone wrong? What are the pitfalls in our data? And what are the risks if we are wrong? And the risks are much higher in the context of comparative effectiveness. I think that's that hits the nail on the head. And um, I, I think you did a good job of uh, mentioning this recent paper in the JCO, and I'm forgetting the first author, Sony, was it? Um, yeah. The last author was Daniel Pratt. Um, and this is the paper that um, we like to scoop, and the, these authors like to scoop. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, no, I, I, we, we had something cooking, but uh, yeah. But I still have a way to salvage. Yeah, yeah. We have to go back to the kitchen. We got to go back to the kitchen, but I, I think there's a you got to add some more paprika. But it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a spicy dish when we pull it out of the kitchen. But um, but I think this paper made a very interesting point, which was, um, this is a paper that compared uh, many many clinical questions for which they've been both real-world observational data and randomized data, um, which is often the case. And it really found something like, uh, you know, they, they used a kappa coefficient to describe what's the likelihood these two forms of data agree more than chance alone. And, and I guess the, the answer to the question was that it really was no better than chance alone. All right, now Dr. Booth is correct. I, I think we are lost. We man. are lost. But I know there's waterfall nearby. Right. We're in the woods. We're in We're the, the woods. We're in the park. All right, I'm back in plenary session mobile command unit with Dr. Christopher Booth. Dr. Booth, you've just seen seven waterfalls. Is has that satisfied your thirst for waterfalls? Yes, it exceeded my expectations and it took away the anxiety I had with your erratic driving on the way <laughs> in the countryside of Oregon. But it was a remarkable hike, a vigorous uh, yet uh, remarkable hike. Well, I, I think um, I blame any failures of driving on the fact that uh, it's difficult to both drive and host a podcast. Correct, correct. Yeah, but we're back. Um, I think one of the few top, well, I think we had a couple of topics left we wanted to address. And one of those topics was a very interesting paper that you have forthcoming in the BMJ that probably by the time we put this audio out will have come out. And this is a paper about financial conflict of interest that you wrote with Alan Detsky. So first, we'll tell the listeners a little bit about who is Alan Detsky and how do you know this? Dr. So Detsky. Alan Detsky is a senior internist in the University of Toronto system who was a mentor to me through training and we've continued to keep in touch and remain close friends since then. And Alan's a very interesting guy. He's an MD, PhD, um, has PhDs in health economics. And uh, he was one of the early general internists at University of Toronto and uh, did a lot of work in health policy. And really was a very, very gracious mentor to me uh, early in my training and throughout kind of my faculty career. And so the piece that we wrote, the, uh, the first piece we wrote, which um, you embarrassed me about a few hours ago because I couldn't remember the name, just to clarify for the record, the name of that paper was Why Patients Receive Treatments with Minimal Benefit. So I just wanted to ensure listeners that I'm not totally demented. Yeah. But in any case... You've had a chance to email your ghostwriter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I found clarity in the rainforest of Oregon. So the, the second paper um, is something we wrote, and it, it is uh, really a narrative um, from a series of conversations we've had over the past 20 years. I met Alan in 1999 um, when I was uh, uh, on elective. I was a medical student at Queens and Kingston, but doing an elective rotation in general medicine in Toronto with Alan. 
and the conversations relate to uh, interactions with the pharmaceutical industry and when and how one might choose to engage um, with the industry. And um, the title of the paper uh, initially and up until yesterday was something along the lines of changing your disclosure slide from none to some advice for a future generation of academic physicians and that was how we wrote the piece and then more recently it's changed and the editors wanted a catchier title which which uh, becomes apparent when you read the story and so now the title is going to be something like how to manage potential conflicts with industry after you've tasted the $80 hamburger <laughs> and so all uh, listeners will have to look up the paper to kind of hear the backstory behind that but it really it, it's a series of conversations that we put into in narrative form where we talk about some of the pros and cons of engaging with industry and some of the um, the things that new and emerging um, the next generation of physicians <coughs> might wish to consider so and what do you see as the pros and cons you're telling me a little bit earlier that it's a networking opportunity, it's a place to meet people, um, advance your career. What yeah, so I think there's a number of reasons why young physicians might interact with industry. I guess I'll start by saying that it's um, in academic medicine, it's actually fairly easy for me as a health services researcher to have no conflicts and no formal relations with industry. And that's because I don't do clinical trials. And so I just want to clarify that, you know, my colleagues who run clinical trials, um, have to, uh, given the reality, uh, have very fruitful and engaging relationships with industry. And, and that's just the reality of the system, and certainly a lot of good comes from those relationships. Having said that, um, Ian Tannock, who is one of my other mentors in Toronto, uh, was well known as a, as a highly regarded trialist, but Ian was able to maintain very strict boundaries so that although he engaged with industry, when it came to running trials, he was very careful about maintaining boundaries. He did not accept payments for personal gain, and he ensured that he had, um, uh, you know, authority over how the results were interpreted, analyzed, and reported in the medical literature. So th this, you know, the, the conversation was somewhat of a niche conversation between Alan and I because he was a health policy expert and I was a health services researcher. So it was actually very feasible for me to, to develop a successful academic career without having ties to industry. But I guess coming back to the conversation I had with Alan over the years, in the early years, was he said, and Alan, as we talk about in, in our BMJ commentary, in the 1990s, Alan um, uh, spoke and gave advice to pharmaceutical companies attended meetings. And as he wrote in, in the commentary, he enjoyed those meetings and he, he, he benefited financially from the meetings and he felt he was able to manage those conflicts. However, in the late 90s, he published a series of seminal papers in the New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA that were some of the earliest work to show that authors of guidelines or editorials um, who had industry conflicts were much more likely to interpret gray evidence in a light that was favorable to the industry. This is the famous calcium channel calcium blocker channel paper. Blocker paper was an, Alan Desky's uh, seminal paper with one of his trainees. And he said after he did that, it's like his eyes opened, he described it, and he saw the influence of industry in all facets uh, of medicine. And after that, he severed all ties with industry and in fact became very uh, firm in his belief that one needs to be careful about how one engages with industry. And so he told me as I was launching my independent career, I still remember sitting in his office and him saying something to the extent of, it's becoming increasingly clear that people with financial conflicts interpret the evidence differently 
and draft guidelines differently, etc. And he said, we're in an era now where people think that just by declaring the conflicts is good enough. He said, however, one day the world will change and the people given opportunities to write guidelines, write editorials, and lead clinical trials will need to be those people with no financial conflicts. And he said, I urge you to consider branding yourself as the guy in your field who does not have conflicts so that you will become a new form of key opinion leader when the world comes to this realization. And so that was kind of the, the gist of the conversation. And because I was going into HSR and I was able to achieve grants through through our CIHR granting agency, et cetera, I was in a position where I really didn't need to engage with them. But I can tell you that, and as you and I were chatting about um, between, I think, waterfall number four and number five, is that one of the allures for young physicians to engage with industries, I think the one of the main things that young academics are struggling with as they launch their career is to, to network and to find opportunities and find a niche for themselves and to engage with decision makers. And certainly, um, participating in many of these industry events enables that to a certain extent. So I can see why it's um, it's appealing and of interest to people starting out. And we make it very clear, um, I, I hope we do for readers of the commentary, that we're not passing judgment and not trying to denigrate any of the work done by people who engage with industry because um, a lot of very fine work comes from those fruitful relationships. But I think what we're advocating for is the fact that um, Perhaps people who have conflicts should not be the ones who are crafting the guidelines, interpreting the evidence, and there needs to be um, really a very clear boundary between pharmaceutical influence and providing continuing medical education. And I think that's what, um, I'm going to pause for a second, we had a good view of Mount Hood. That is a remarkable view of Mount Hood. Yeah. Keep your eyes on the road, Prasad. <laughs> um, I think that's one of the things that we've seen in a few ways now, I think, you know, there is increasing evidence since that seminal paper by Detsky, which looked at calcium channel blockers. And I think some of that story was kind of mischaracterized in some recent pieces in the New England Journal. The issue was, at the time, that calcium channel blockers, um, they clearly lowered blood pressure. There were other drugs that lowered blood pressure, like thiazide diuretics and ACE inhibitors. Some of those drugs happened to cost a heck of a lot more money than other drugs. And yet, there was data and perhaps some, you know, bioplausible data that calcium channel blockers may be better than these other classes of drugs. And we still had not yet had the definitive results that we had ultimately in all hat, suggesting that the other class, that they're all the same. That's the right study to run is a study that actually answers the question. But in the meantime, a number of editorialists were quick to say that the most expensive, most novel class of drugs was better. That turned out not to be the case. So I think history has shown that Detsky was right in the sense that he picked an issue that there was gray evidence, that history would reveal that actually that was negative evidence, that, that they, it was not a preferable class of medication, and yet prescribing was over-exuberant by people who were conflicted. And now we have so many new papers that have mapped, I think ever since the Affordable Care Act, Sunshine Act, have mapped how many people have conflict, how much the money is, the key opinion leaders, it's always an order of magnitude higher, people write NCCN guidelines, it's higher. That money is linked to prescribing differences in terms of specific branded drugs. This is Aaron Mitchell's work that appeared in Gem Oncology recently. So it seems that you know it's clear that the finance that you know the industry is not giving this money away as a form of charity. I think they have calculated that there is a certain return on investment and that it's a profitable thing to do for them. It's a quite a lot of bang for your buck. 
to sort of create an environment where people think favorably about your products, even if those products may be marginal. <clears throat> I hope that we do get to the point that Detsky hypothesizes we will, this world where we actually do seek the opinion of a non-conflicted set of experts. If somebody were a clever philanthropist, they should fund a guidelines, uh, you know, that should be a non-conflicted guidelines, a sort of antidote uh, to the NCCN, uh, which is conflicted and frequently a grab bag of, you know, my medicine plus your medicine plus anyone else's medicine. Um, where do you see, you know, what's, what is the advice you have for the junior people in your article? Do you advise them to limit these relationships? Yeah, I or? think uh, the, the advice that we offer, um, and really the advice Alan gave me, is, is that it's not wrong um, to, to engage with industry, but to do it purposefully and to think about how it advances your core mission. And if there is an opportunity to investigate a drug or device that you're passionate about and think is important for your patients and will be pivotal for your career, that's probably an important engagement. But if you're going to do that, you need to think about having um, uh, research relationships, which are very different from personal income relationships. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, that was one of the messages, just to be, to, con to make it as a conscious decision and to realize that it is, uh, it's feasible and maybe one day in certain segments of uh, the medical community might be desirable to be in a position where you don't have any conflicts. And so for the, and I think that that's a, that's a point well taken, that's a very unique relationship, cultivating the kind of relationships. What about what the majority of junior people are doing, in my opinion, maybe I'm wrong, which is, in my observation, maybe I'm wrong, um, which is, I think, serving on ad boards. So they go to ASCO or ASH, they're invited to a Janssen ad board, you know, uh, a Roche ad board. They go in the evening to give their quote-unquote advice about how to market, you know, I don't know, some, some new drug. Um, and they get paid a nice little paycheck. Um, What's your advice for those kind of meetings? I think it's, uh, I mean, you can imagine why it would be very difficult to say no to that. As, as, as a, you know, a new faculty, you're given the opportunity to spend an evening with thought leaders in the field, have a nice meal, engage in conversation, and take home a nice check. You know, in fact, one might wonder, you know, it, the, the rational thinking behind saying no to something like that. But obviously, I think that these things, as you said, they're not being done um, as acts of charity. And these things do have... Uh, implications down the road and I think that you know physicians working in Canada the United States you know we are extremely well paid and I think you know as Ian Tannock once said he said you know you, you, you're never going to be able uh, you, it, it's, it's never going to be a problem for you as a physician in Canada to have a nice meal and enjoy a glass of nice wine and a meal and so to think carefully about to what extent you need to or want to engage in these activities just make it a conscious decision I think that's well put but without IP in a startup company, Christopher, you may be able to have a nice meal and a nice glass of wine, but you won't be able to have a helicopter to take your house in East Hampton. No, I won't. I won't. But I'll have a, um, a uh, world-renowned podcast producer and hematologist-oncologist driving me. Chauffeur in a, you. Yeah, chauffeur me. At, uh, at the risk of death. Somewhat uh, on track somewhat competently. for a remarkable uh, waterfall hike. Now, let me ask you about... You know, you've published so many papers over the years, and I think many of them occurred at a time where there was just not a lot of people making these kind of points. You know, you were one of the first commentaries I can ever find that I thought was very critical of progression-free survival and kind of 
ask the field to think more about what endpoints matter to patients. You know, you're one of the first to map randomized trials over time. Um, you were one of the first to do some of these health services research projects in oncology. Um, why do you think differently? How, what is your secret? How do you approach oncology that you've consistently, I think, thought differently? That's a good question. You know, I, I, um, I think a lot of this comes from questions that arise uh, either every day in practice or when I'm reading the literature to try to figure out how to treat a patient with a unique condition. Um, I also get inspired by the junior trainees that I work with who really uh, come into oncology not with no preconceived notions and they are willing to challenge and ask questions and I find that you know that that's a main reason why many of us uh, engage in academic medicine and so I think that some of this comes from the junior trainees and the junior faculty that I work with um, some of this comes from the the mentors that I've had Alan and Ian uh, Bill McKillop and Elizabeth Eisenhower who have been incredibly gracious with their time their mentoring and providing me with opportunities and have also led by example by in their own way not being willing to settle for the status quo and being uh, being willing and able to speak uh, honestly and to push the envelope when it comes to issues that matter for uh, the system the cancer system but most importantly to remember what matters for patients the last topic I wanted to talk about with you was your work in global health and what you've learned through your partnership in India. I know in 2016 you took a sabbatical, you were there for three months. What are the lessons that you've, you've learned from your work globally? So this is an area that um, I'm really passionate about and it's something, you know, when I went to medical school I had some interest in global health like many medical students do. and. Um, but when I uh, decided I wasn't going to be an infectious disease doctor, this is my own naive thinking maybe the era, I said, well, if I'm not going to be an ID doc, I guess there's nothing that I can do globally. That was kind of old, old-style global health thinking on my part. And I, as I mentioned earlier, I was drawn to oncology because these very rich doctor-patient relationships um, and, and got, got busy with my career and, 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 and uh, growing family. So the global health issue got put on hold for a while. But if I think back, and this is something that maybe I should have mentioned when you asked me just kind of my career story, is when I went to medical school, I had no interest in doing research. I was used to spending my summers, uh, as we talked about earlier on our hike, in, in the far north of Ontario on these wilderness canoe trip expeditions for a few weeks at a time. Or to earn money, I was planting trees in the remote forests of northern Canada. And then I enjoyed traveling um, and going backpacking through the Andes and things like that. So in second year medical school, we were told that we had to spend two months in the summer doing research. And I dreaded the chance of having to do that. I wanted to go backpacking and travel. So I, I, I came up with a uh, what I call a grade 8 science project level survey of malaria. And I, I designed this. And my, my son's in grade 8 now. And I know he would do a superior job. But anyhow, I came up with a survey. And I went to Guyana in South America. And I spent about six weeks there, and I was in this clinic in a very remote rural village with a physician who had served in the Vietnam War and, suffice it to say, was a real character. I learned a lot from him um, and uh, a lot from the people there, so I'd be an observer in clinic. Um, and then in the afternoons I would go to the market and I would um, check people's blood pressure and then ask them if I could talk to them about their knowledge, attitudes and beliefs of malaria. And I actually found that really fascinating and I went home I did the data analysis myself and I, I remember I told this story recently to some other friends that when I wrote my first draft, this was my first publication and I, I was so worried that you know any statement you made had to be fully referenced. I didn't want to get in trouble. So the opening line of my paper was something like 
malaria is transmitted by mosquitoes. And I had like 84 references for that one <laughs> sentence because I thought I had to cite every paper that had ever described that. And so, of course, wow. when I sent this off to the prestigious McGill Journal of Medicine, uh, the reviewers and editors there were able to trim my uh, over-ambitious referencing. So anyway, this is my first publication, the McGill Journal of Medicine. And I can say with certainty that this was only read by two people. My myself and my mom. But anyhow, that actually opened my eyes to doing research. It also opened my eyes to the incredible challenges, uh, inequities and disparities uh, globally when it comes to healthcare. But as I mentioned, I got busy with an oncology training program and a growing family and building my own health services research program in Ontario. So really global health got put on hold for 10 years and I actually thought I would never get into this space. Until, uh, again, this is an opportunity provided by a mentor, in 2014, Ian Tannock put forward my name to attend a World Oncology Forum meeting in Lugano, and um, the keynote speaker, who I didn't know at the time, uh, but had become subsequently very close friends with Richard Sullivan, was unable to attend. Um, he was actually in Africa dealing with Ebola, but that, that's a whole other story. So anyhow, the organizer asked me to show some data from the health services work we did in Ontario. And as I did this in front of a number of leaders from the WHO and some thought leaders from India, a bunch of light bulbs went off when I realized that the issues we describe with cancer registry data regarding access to care, quality of care and outcomes is, is in fact even more relevant in emerging cancer systems. And this led to an opportunity to spend a three month sabbatical in South India in Trivandrum, Kerala, and this was um, a, a remarkable uh, both professional and personal opportunity for, for my family. So we moved over there. The kids were young. They were, you know, three, five, eight, and ten. And we packed up and moved there for three months. And I would spend uh, the mornings uh, sitting in clinic, primarily as an observer, just learning uh, from some very skilled clinicians. Um, and also hearing the patient's story about how they navigate through the system. And the afternoons I would spend in uh, the epidemiology unit where they had a very high functioning uh, world-class epi program and a hospital based registry and a population-based registry. And after the three months there, I you know, developed very, very close um, collaborations and relationships with, and friendships with people both in Kerala, as well as um, some of the leaders in the National Cancer Grid and the Tata Memorial Hospital. And that has really transformed my career in the sense that I now spend about half of my scholarly time uh, working and thinking about problems uh, in global oncology from kind of a, a big global perspective. So it's been really a very exciting uh, opportunity that but again, I guess a message for maybe the junior trainees listening to the podcast is, you know, keep an open mind about opportunities that might present themselves along the way. Because certainly I had a few major career detours. The first was an unplanned outpatient elective at Princess Margaret Hospital that led to a radical change in, in the career path I chose. And then uh, the second was, uh, was, was moving to India for a sabbatical, which uh, really has led to a number of exciting kind of career opportunities. You know, 10 years from now, what do you hope to accomplish? Um, in your collaborations with India? Good question. Um, again, I've been doing this now for three years and I still consider myself very new to the global health space. I mean, basically what I bring is an analytic perspective and a way to work with registry and real world data to answer questions that matter to systems and patients. So um, we're doing a number of projects in Kerala related to palliative care and access to opioids. Um, uh, some projects looking at socioeconomic status and stage of cancer diagnosis and then some very uh, exciting work at the national level, the National Cancer Grid, looking at um, this paradox in India of the underutilization, overutilization paradox. 
And so what I mean by that is when I moved to India, I, I perhaps naively, but I think most people would share this uh, preconceived idea, felt that the biggest challenge would be um, underutilization and lack of access to care. And that, that remains the primary issue in many of these systems. But I was really dismayed to learn that there is a parallel epidemic of gross overutilization um, in a private sector that's really unregulated. And this is really, you know, there's a number of tragedies that I saw in the Indian cancer system amidst some very encouraging things, but one of the tragedies was seeing this overutilization for people who are paying out of pocket and cannot <coughs> afford this to um, go into debt for generations, sell their farm, to be able to get um, surveillance PET scans done monthly to monitor response to palliative chemotherapy for a solid tumor, for, for example. So this is something that um, we felt very strongly about and together with uh, uh, Professor Pramesh at the Tata and Richard Sullivan and others, we launched uh, Choosing Wisely India, which is the first time Choosing Wisely has been done um, outside of a high income country. And my Indian colleagues uh, ran with this idea and, and we had a very, very exciting uh, dynamic working group and the national body signed on to it. And so I think the plans going forward are going to be to continue to build capacity in the Indian cancer system with regards to measuring system performance to look at both concordance with national guidelines that they've created in concordance with the choosing wisely uh, recommendations and really what we're starting to do through the national cancer grid is they have a methods workshop called credo which is similar to the veil or flims workshop in North America and Europe where they're making major efforts to try to train the next generation so that um, it'll be uh, the Indian physicians and scientists who will be um, subsequently trained their own trainees and building capacity in that regards. This is something that's really needed in, in many parts of the world, but particularly in India. I think that's one of the things that um, I guess at some point in my life I, I started to become, I was surprised by it, but over time I'm a little less surprised, which is that when you look at settings where one would expect the predominant problem to be under treatment rather than over treatment, Settings, for instance, where there's a single payer, um, where there is no financial incentive to do more, such as the veterans' hospital. Settings in which um, there may be resource scarcity or the average per capita income may be very low, and you would expect that access to care would be the predominant burden. And to some degree, of course, that is the predominant burden. Um, but it's always surprising that in all of these settings in healthcare, you almost always find some element of over-treatment. So, for instance, in the Veterans Hospital, you may see some screening that just doesn't make any sense. It's, it's screening somebody with comorbidities so great it would preclude the benefit, whatever benefit there could be from cancer screening, for instance. In India, you see someone, you know, you, as you point out, undergoing a PET scan for follow-up of an incurable malignancy. And I just want to make this point that we see that sometimes in the United States. And every time you see that, it kind of boggles the mind why someone is following this illness with a PET scan over and over and over again, unless their goal is somewhat to deliver radiation therapy to right. the patient. <laughs> but I mean, I, I really boggles the mind because it, it will not inform better decision making. It can only lead you to sort of act perhaps more rashly. It certainly burdens the patient with more radiation and also the cost and the inconvenience and the longer scheduling waits for typically PET scans. Yet we do see it. So I do think that, you know, it is important in any healthcare system to think about what you need to do you're not doing well, but also to look very carefully to make sure you're not overdoing it in other respects. And, and you're the first, I think, to, to go to a low and middle income country and say, even here, we can have Choosing Wisely. Is it not the first? It is the first outside. Yeah. So it spawned, so colleagues, um, I'm involved in Choosing Wisely Africa now, and there's some talk about Choosing Wisely Brazil. So there's a 
major momentum in this space. And I think, I think the excitement about applying some of the lessons that we've learned in high-income countries and, and, and you know, modifying them to context-appropriate low-income settings has been very exciting. It's probably one of the reasons Lancet Oncology was interested in this piece of work. And I think really comes down to framing a lot of what we do in the context of high-value care. And I think that, um, you know, that, that, that probably needs to be really uh, drilled uh, into the uh, training curriculum and uh, continuing medical education is delivering care that helps patients live longer or live better lives in, in, in a way that's responsible use of our health um, health system resources. And again, so something else that we talked about earlier is the concept of you know these value scales and the es ESMO and ASCO value frameworks um, are, are quite complex but have done an admirable job of trying to move this conversation forward. And just to follow up on some of the stuff we talked about earlier with historical perspectives of clinical trials, when we took the ESMO and ASCO frameworks and applied them to a historical cohort of trials in the last five years, it was really sobering because we found that amongst about 300 RCTs in the major tumor sites, um, half of these trials were positive, meaning that there was a statistically significant difference in favor of the experimental arm. But when we actually looked at these so-called positive trials and applied the ESMO framework to it, we found that only about 30% of these studies found a benefit that would be considered substantial or clinically meaningful. So this translates to 15%, 1-5% of all randomized trials are identifying therapies that actually offer real benefits to our patients. So this is really uh, it speaks to the tremendous inefficiency of the current um, drug development and clinical trial program, uh, which really makes you know our most valuable resource in all of this is, is our patients, uh, their time and their willingness to go on these studies. And we need to be uh, more creative and certainly investigate therapies that offer higher benefits for both the patient and the system. You know, I think that's just um, spot on in terms of, you know, uh, and of course, we, we have to also state that you alluded to this in your talk, that some people think it's a low bar. It, I mean, it's objectively a low bar. It, if you offer meaningful benefit by ASCO and ESMO, um, th that is, that's better than not, uh, but that's by no means a, a wonder drug. Um, you know, there's, there's meaningful benefit and then there's real, the kinds of benefits we really ought to have, and that's probably a higher bar. Correct, and so that's something we've struggled with a little bit, so I was invited to, um sit on a working group at the World Health Organization last year, uh, which was tasked with deriving a framework for uh, to just help decide which cancer medicines should be considered essential and go on the essential medicine list. And um, we struggle with this because around the table were a number of us, policymakers and clinicians from high-income countries, and then a number of colleagues from low- and middle-income countries. And for um, for something to go on the essential medicines list, you know, our, our conversation really was that it really does need to offer benefit and value because if resources are put into these medicines, yeah. they're going to be taken out of other elements yeah. of either the cancer system or maternal and child care yeah. or other elements yeah. of care. So we really, we, we actually pushed the group and we said that in the palliative context, in many of these emerging systems, the bar needs to be raised and really for something to be considered essential, it should probably improve survival by four to six months or, or have real and proven benefit <coughs> that improves quality of life. Um, and so that's something that, you know, there was some pushback on that from some segments, but I think that um, we, we need to start having at least, we need to have these honest conversations as a community of oncologists, as policymakers, with our payers, and with our patients. You know, I think what you do is so interesting in the sense that I think many trainees 
Um, many people in their career, when you ask them that what made that what makes you do what you do, they tell you something like, "Well, I was interested in 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 breast cancer. I was interested in lung cancer and maybe a hematologic malignancy. And then I got interested in like PI3 kinase signaling. Started to think upstream and downstream. Started to look what candidate compounds were there. You know, did some investigator initiated trial and and found there's some nice you know argument you can make to test it in a certain malignancy. That's the kind of story you hear. When I listen to you tell your story, I feel like it's it's a different perspective. Um, and you may not have consciously done it this way, but the perspective I see is, you think about all of the disability adjusted life years lost from cancer globally, which must be in the millions of life years lost, I mean, tremendous life years lost. And you're asking yourself, I think in a career, in kind of an iterative way in your career, how can I best um, lower this life year lost globally? Um, where do I need to go? What do I need to do? What cancers do I need to work on? And should I be in the lab discovering new treatments or should I be trying to take treatments that we're known to work and maximize the benefit? And I see your, your career goal is to, as sort of in a utilitarian would, minimize the disability just a life years lost globally and I have to commend you for that in the sense that I think it is a very um, unique way to look at the problem, but probably the right way to look at the problem. Do you but think the, of it that way? I, I, um, now that you mentioned, hearing you describe it that way, it actually sounds like, I, I agree. Um, it sounds like I planned it that way. Yeah. It didn't really come as a plan. It kind of was a meandering path that led to this. But I can tell you that um, having spent, you know, you know, obviously three months living in India and quite a bit of time um, back and forth since then and, and, and seeing the um, the courage of the physicians and the health system and the patients who are dealing with what seems like insurmountable problems and then coming back to a high-income country and practicing medicine um, it's hard not to feel you know almost an imperative to contribute the best way that I'm able to and, you know I, I, I we talk about this with our kids when we moved back from India, but I feel like in many ways, you know, I, I won the lottery of life, right? You know, I, I worked hard to get where I did, but there's many people all over the world that work hard to get to where they do. And I, I, I by the lottery of life, was born into, uh, you know, an upper middle class family in Canada. I was able to go to wonderful schools and I have a job now that I love where I can look after patients and teach and do research and I get paid extremely well for it. And it seems to me like I, it's, I, I've won this lottery and I feel like it's um, almost an imperative to try to make the most of that opportunity. And whether that um, is uh, in the clinic, uh, interacting with my patients, or in the research realm of trying to ensure that the questions I ask and the agenda that I push is to try to advance things you know, slowly in, in, in the right direction is something that I guess gives me tremendous satisfaction. And I hope that in the coming years, um, I'm able to, to make some, some contributions <coughs> together with um, the many people that are now within oncology that are interested in, in global health. I think you put it very nicely. And if you know, if I were to advise somebody who you know wants to think about like what they ought to do with their very limited career time, because even though it's on the order of decades, you know, before you know it, you know, it, it goes by fast. You're already a decade into it. Um, I, I like to think that one should try to do the most with the time you have. So you should strive for maximum impact. Um, but beyond that, I think you have to also think about what's the unique skill set that you bring to the table that no one else may have and the role you might fill that is so difficult to fill otherwise. And, you know, we do need, of course, people to put people on large industry-sponsored studies. Um, 
But a lot of people can do that. Is there something special you can do that other people can't do? I think that's a question we should ask ourselves more. The last thing I wanted to talk to you about is, um, you know, uh, before you came on, a bunch of your trainees said, you know, you're, you're the model for, I think, work-life balance, for uh, low stress at work, for, for being a really good mentor. Um, I think, you know, we were hiking and talking and, and listeners, I, I don't want to go through everything Dr. Booth has done, but uh, he's, a, he's a very active gentleman. A lot of travel, a lot of hiking, a lot of canoeing. You know, he, he's, he's done some amazing trips. Um, I, I think that all the trips you do probably makes your work stronger. Do you feel that that's the case? It's because you have so much time to decompress um, that you come at it with sort of a, a different perspective. You're not caught up so much in the day-to-day and you can kind of stay, take a step back and think a little bit more about oncology. And, I see that in your papers. Do you feel that way? I think so. I think, um, I mean, I, I think the work-life balance issue is something that all of us struggle with, and I, I don't by any means think that I've, you know, You struggle with it too? Out. I do, I do, because there's, especially in academic medicine, I mean, you know, the clinical work, um, it, it has to come at an end, right? The clinic's closed, or you're not on call, or the operating room's finished. That ends, but the academic scholarly stuff, you could, you could, could it could easily consume you yeah. um, every night and weekend. And so that was something in the early years I had to figure out a balance, especially as we had a growing family. Um, and so I, I like to think that I've found some ways of balancing it, but I think a lot of this has to do with, you know, the, the, the things that we're taught about, you know, looking after ourselves. And so, you know, exercise, you know, sleep, spending time with family and friends to decompress, all those things are very important. You know, I'm an avid runner and we spend a lot of time sailing or canoeing in the summer and certainly, um, you know, as you and I talked about in our height, you know, our, our work is obviously very important to us, but we're very replaceable at work. And so one place we're not replaceable and nor would I ever want to be is at home. And, you know, my eldest kid is, you know, 14 now, and I can't tell you how it just seems like the other day he was a, a newborn babe and I was a fellow of Princess Margaret. And, and th- these years go by very, very quickly. And so I think it's something that I've tried to um, balance. I haven't always done it, uh, you know, perfectly, but I think it's something that um, certainly I like to talk to with um, my trainees and, and, and junior colleagues because it, it's easy to get consumed by work, but I think we have to remember what really matters as well. Dr. Booth, I think um, I, uh, I want to thank you for coming out here to Oregon. Uh, per request, we were able to see seven waterfalls. Uh, we were got lost only once by my count. I don't know how many times you've you thought we were lost, but uh, I, I can assure listeners that I knew I knew where I was going. Um, and uh, we haven't yet had a car accident. So I'm willing to declare this a success. I want to thank you for coming on the plenary session stage. Um, I like to tell listeners it's a lot like giving the actual plenary session, except our audience is broader and, and more important. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you for having me, Vinay. I just wanted to a- acknowledge and thank um, the many contributions that you've made through both your podcast and your writing and your thinking and you know in many areas of academic medicine there would be there could be easier paths that one could choose and I think that um, what you're doing is incredibly important work and I, I know from talking to trainees that you are having a profound impact 
on the way that they're thinking about things. And they're starting to question and wonder about things in a way that perhaps our generation didn't. And so I think this is, uh, you know, when I told colleagues and friends I was coming on the plenary session stage, they were thrilled. They didn't think it was a major meeting. They knew exactly which one I was going to. And they said, well, let us know what his office looks like. And I'm going to be able to tell them his office is a beautiful hike through the rainforest with seven waterfalls. So thank you, Vinay, for having me. Thanks so much, Dr. Booth. It's very kind of you. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.